It's July, which means it's college football preview season. Unfortunately, your favorite college football magazine is already out of date. To keep up with transfers, injuries, and position battles this summer, consider becoming a CFB Winning Edge Tier 2 Patreon supporter. For a small monthly fee, you'll receive access to our 2021 FBS team profiles, which includes over 10,000 individual player ratings, daily updated depth charts, the most in-depth returning production database on the market, projected point spreads for every game all season, and much more. Visit patreon.com slash Edge to learn more and to sign up. Welcome back, everybody. It's College Football Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. Joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Xavier Trish is here with us again at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E on the Twitter. And today we're going to be previewing the AAC and uh, lots of good teams in this conference. Uh, best G5 conference for sure. But uh, you would think maybe there aren't some bets to be made here because these teams are going to be playing each other and maybe beating up on each other. But Nick has uh, some some for sure bets in, in this conference. So let's dive right in and start with Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, they did lose a late lead to Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. They lost 24 to 21, but that was the lone blemish in the 9-1 AAC championship season for the Bearcats. Their DK win total this year is 10. We have them projected at 10-2, and favored to win 11, talent edges in 10. So uh, let's just start right here, Nick, with the Bearcats. What do you think for 2021? Well, Cincinnati was was certainly uh, the cream of the crop as far as G5 conferences went last season. Excellent team. Um, Really, you know, played great defense. Desmond Ritter, has looked really, really good at times in his career. Last year was a, a good year for sure. Bounced back after a little bit of a sophomore slump, um, but they were a legitimately really, really good team. And uh, they do have to, of course, replace some key pieces. Uh, and that's kind of one interesting thing that we will uh, get to. It seems like in in the conference as a whole. There are more teams with lower returning production percentages, lower rankings in those uh, returning production areas than in some of the previous G5 conferences we discussed. And Cincinnati has replaced some NFL talent. They had four guys drafted, three others uh, very quickly signed as undrafted free agents. So, you know, you're, you're talking about seven total players who are on NFL rosters, and then uh, Jarrell White, linebacker, 100-rated player by the time he left Cincinnati last season. Uh, when I compiled those numbers, he had not signed as an undrafted free agent, but I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in a training camp already, if, or you know, eventually if he hasn't already. So that's you know significant. That That's certainly something to consider. I still absolutely would say that Cincinnati is the team to beat, in the American, they are 11th overall in our power rankings, which is uh, three spots higher than any group of five team has been in, in a uh, 
you know, preseason power rankings in, in our history. So they are starting out already as, as the best G5 team that we've seen in, in our uh, four years of doing this. So uh, to, to still be at that level, despite, you know, losing uh, some some really talented players, including, you know, starting left tackle, James Hudson, uh, leading running back, Jared Dokes, some, some key pieces of that defense as well, especially in the secondary, Derek Forrest and, and James Wiggins, both starting safety. So, uh, you know, some, some spots that will need some attention, but the guys that they were able to get back are, are certainly capable of, of, you know, helping Cincinnati maintain their spot atop the conference. So it starts with Ritter, uh, 94 rated player in our uh, numbers that makes him a top 15 quarterback the way we calculate things in our individual uh, player rating. So that's when you're talking about a, a G5 team about as good as you could hope for. I mean, he's, he's certainly somebody to build around. Not perfect by any stretch. They didn't do a great job attacking, you know, deep downfield with him. Uh, but, you know, that that's certainly uh, something that you won't have to worry about. There's other AAC teams that we'll discuss where it seems like they've got everything maybe but the quarterback situation figured out. So Cincinnati's got that. They've got some talent uh, at the receiver position. Three guys have, have had all uh, AAC uh, selections in, in their past. The running back position, even with Dokes gone, is going to be just fine. Jerome Ford, transferred from Alabama, should step in, should be, I would say, just as productive as Dokes, if not even better. A um, little bit of concern, I guess, at, at the overall depth because some of the, the guys that we expect will be, you know, second, third in the pecking order have had some injuries in their history, but uh, the offensive line should be good. Three out of four or uh, three out of five starters back, um, but I would expect that they will, you know, be able to to get Ritter and, and those playmakers uh, plenty of opportunities to, to perform. And then the defense might just be, the best in, in the group of five and could be certainly one of the best in the country. It was last year. Cincinnati was our number one ranked defense and in our overall defensive team performance, they were number two against the pass, number nine against the run. And, and so you, you know, combine that with a top 30 offense and Cincinnati, according to our team performance ratings, which is just looking at uh, a selection of, of some handpicked advanced statistics, they were, the sixth best team in the country. And so this is absolutely a team that is capable of, of repeating as uh, conference champions, absolutely capable of going over that 10 win uh, DraftKings win total that we uh, sort of use as our guide throughout all of these previews. Uh, but that being said, you know, they, they, because of, of some of the really talented and, and productive players uh, it, it might be, you know, maybe maybe some teams are, or, or excuse me, some folks looking on the outside might just think it's a, a foregone conclusion that Cincinnati's going to run through the conference schedule. I'm not so sure. They have a couple of, of tough uh, non-conference games as well, Indiana and Notre Dame. Every game is winnable, but I don't think that the Cincinnati team, even with some elite players on defense, Maje Sanders is a, an edge rusher, Darian Beavers a, a transfer, at linebacker has gotten really good, really big. Uh, and then they might have the best corner combo. You know, it, it's one of the top in the country. It, it certainly 
uh, is one of the best in, in the group of five and Kobe Bryant and Ahmad Gardner. Ahmad Gardner sounds like he might be a top, you know, what, 50 picker or something like that uh, next year. I mean, he's he's in the conversation as best cornerback in the country. So they've got some elite, elite playmakers uh, on, on, or excuse me, they've got some elite players on defense. They've got some really, really solid pieces on offense. They're coached really well. They're a really, really good team. But, you know, I, I would be careful thinking that this is an unbeatable team. Uh, because this is a tough conference and they've got some tough games as well. So I've, I'm not ready to go in on the over 10, um, but it would not surprise me at all if Cincinnati's 11-1 and and goes on to win the conference championship or 12-0 and and making a run to the playoff is, is not out of the realm of possibility uh, if they're able to, to get what I expect would, would have to be an upset on the road at Notre Dame. So everything is on the table. They're a really, really, really good team. Who was it? Who was the team playing Notre Dame that we were looking at earlier in the previews? And Xavier and I were like, no way they beat Notre Dame. Toledo. It wasn't, it was Toledo. That's who it was. Yeah. yeah. Cincinnati has a real shot. You know, real uh, shot. Yeah. Yeah, Toledo, I, Xavier and I are going to hold to a uh, zero shot. But yeah, we're going to hold serve on that one. Yeah. Cincinnati, uh, Xavier, they have a hard stretch here where they do play their three of their four hardest games here. Uh, in, in uh, three of their hardest games in a four-week stretch, rather. Uh, Indiana on September 18th. Then they do have a bye before they play Notre Dame, so that helps a lot going into that game. And then Temple is okay, but uh, then UCF after that. So, you know, uh, luckily they have the bye before Notre Dame, but that's a tough stretch of Indiana, Notre Dame, UCF uh, in five weeks because everything else looks kind of on coast for them. But, yeah, I, I don't. we'll see how tough of a stretch that is. What I will say about that stretch there is I really enjoy the fact that it's uh, where it is in the season. Notre Dame at that point in the year will know everything we need to know about Notre Dame. You know, we'll, we'll have all of the scouting that we possibly could have on a Notre Dame by week four. Uh, a lot of the times when you play these bigger schools, in, the, in Cincinnati's case, especially with them being on the road, you don't necessarily want them early because you don't necessarily have the amount of footage that you might need. They're going to have plenty of game tape going into those two weeks that they're going to need to make the, an informed decision when obviously playing them. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to Cincinnati this year, though. I think this is a team that can run the table. I think I'll be perfectly honest with you. With having Indiana and Notre Dame that early in the year, as well as UCF, I think those are games that could possibly be ranked on ranked. Obviously, we won't see until um, the top 25 is released in preseason. But I think those games, if they are ranked on ranked, this is the best chance in since the CFB playoff has been created for Cincinnati for a team to make it out of the out of the group of five. I expect Cincinnati to be a top ten team, uh, at very worst eleven or twelve to start the year off. And with that being the case, if Indiana's ranked in the top fifteen, if Notre Dame's ranked in the top twenty, and they're able to keep those rankings into those weeks, which I expect them to both do, it really gives you an opportunity if you're Cincinnati to make a run at it with two ranked wins on your schedule, as well as we don't know whether or not UCF will be ranked by that point. Once again, have to have to look at what possibly could happen from a top 25 perspective. I think by week six, it's very well possible that they could be a ranked team uh, when they would be meeting them um, on October 16th, which would give them a ranked team in conference as well. So I think that there, you know, there's a lot of possibilities here for Cincinnati to have a good enough schedule and strength of schedule, more importantly, to get to the playoff. Obviously, they have to go undefeated to do so. I think they can do so with the schedule because at the UCF, I think it's a walk. Um, maybe Navy is a little bit more difficult at being on the road and obviously with the way Navy plays. But, I, you know, Nick's giving me a, a shake of the head here. 
I think I would agree with everybody that that would not, you know, not necessarily. But, you know, I don't see why this team in Cincinnati could not make a run at this uh, this year. Watching them last year against Georgia, this is a team that it is not just a defensive anchor. Um, you know, like some of the teams like Temple has been in the past where they didn't have a great offense but had a defense that could, you know, do everything. Um, I feel the same way about this Cincinnati team. I think this Cincinnati team has the ability on both ends of the ball to either win a shootout or be able to win in a slugfest. And I really like that about them. Uh, Desmond Ritter is a sleeper for me. I think this is a guy who takes the next step this next year, um, throwing the football wise. I think last year he was in that, in this, in that weird space of a mobile quarterback where they, where they try to show you that they're a pocket passer. Um, And then he finally just allowed himself down the stretch there to use his legs. I know in the Georgia game, that was a big uh, uh, point of emphasis for uh, for Kirby Smart was not allowing him to get his legs going because that's obviously something that he has in his game. Uh, so I really like Cincinnati. Uh, you know, uh, Nick talked about their secondary. Their secondary is not only not only is it good, but it's got P five quote unquote P five athleticism. You know, sometimes we talk about some of these G five levels and they have corners that are maybe five eight, five nine that play really well at the G five level. But when they say P five talent, it's a little bit more difficult f- from a size mismatch. Not in this case. Not at all. Uh, their corners are tall. They're a little wiry, but they're tall and they have the physical ability to do so. Yeah, and it's definitely helped them on the recruiting trail, finishing 44th nationally nationally last year after finishing 41st a year previously and finishing first um, in the AAC for another year in a row. This is a team that currently in 2022 has a top 30 class um, as of right now, once again, finishing first in the AAC. And if they continue this kind of stretch, Cincinnati is one of those teams that absolutely beca- could become a P5 powerhouse in the next couple of years if they're able to keep this talent going and bring in the kind of guys that Nick was talking about. I mean, Nick, I don't see any odds on uh, them making the playoff. I know, obviously, any G5 team is a long, long shot. But what do you think? Um, do, do you think there's a chance if they go undefeated, or do you think even an undefeated season ain't going to get it done for Cincinnati? I think if they went undefeated, then they they probably are, are much more likely to go than not because that would be a win over Notre Dame and a win over Indiana, uh, two Power Five wins that you would expect at the time would be two ranked wins. Now, if both Indiana and Notre Dame, for whatever reason, fall apart, uh, and those end up at the very end of the season not looking as impressive, then maybe there's an argument to be out. made. Yeah. Uh, they would probably need a couple of these AAC teams uh, to finish you know, in the 10-win range. Uh, right now, maybe UCF is the only one on their schedule that I would, I would say has that, not, not that potential, but I, I think is – a good chance of that happening. SMU, everything could kind of work out and maybe they could get there. But, but uh, of course we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it's, they need to beat a good Indiana team and a good Notre Dame team and be impressive in conference play, get at least one quality, you know, big time conference win. Uh, but I think undefeated, I'd say it's more likely than not if, if they can get through unscathed uh, that they get in. And, and I mean, yeah, I could game out a bunch of different scenarios where they're the first team left out, I guess. But uh, just the way thinking about how things have worked in, in years past, my guess is an undefeated Cincinnati team sneaks in. Let's go to East Carolina where they are ranked 100. So just, just to show you, 
the, the difference in this conference, Cincinnati ranked 11. We dip all the way down to the next team just alphabetically is 100, and they're not even the lowest team. They're not the second or the third lowest team in this conference either. So just interesting to see that big jump. They did lose six of their first seven games, but they finished strong, a 28-3 to win at Temple, and then a 52-38 to upset over SMU. Uh, they finished 3-6, and 3-5 and in the conference. We've got them at 5-7 and seven this year. Five is also their DK total. Uh, favorite to win in five. Talent edges in seven. And look, ECU is going to go as far as their offense takes them generally. So, uh, Nick, you know, we saw the offense click and they have some good, uh, you know, starters coming back. What do we think about ECU going into 2021? ECU is a team that I feel like has been on the rise for a, a few years and then certainly flash potential, especially offensively but has come up a, a little bit short. Our projections last year thought that they could make a run at a bowl game. And, and, you know, they showed some promise and certainly picked up some momentum at the end of the year. It seems like they've, they've played pretty well in November the last few years, but, but um, just, you know, haven't quite been able to, to put it together for a full season. But I, I think there were a lot of things to like about what we saw at East Carolina last year. And they ranked, pretty high in, in returning production. Basically across the board, uh, they are the most experienced team in the conference. They're 16th overall in returning production, the way we calculate it, 20th on offense, 25th on defense. All three of those lead the conference. So, you know, this, this is a uh, season in which everybody brings back more than usual. Uh, but East Carolina is bringing back way more uh, than usual. And it is, you know, compared to a team like Cincinnati, who doesn't maybe see the full benefit of, of the extra year of eligibility uh, that, that some of their other, you know, conference opponents might, might face because they did have so many, you know, NFL talented type players. Uh, but East Carolina, maybe, maybe this year uh, or, you know, last year getting able, being able to, to bring back uh, some, extra year seniors, maybe they close the gap a little bit. And, you know, we, we, we will have to be careful. Uh, we talked a little bit last time in the Mountain West about being too optimistic about every team. And I, I do try to caution myself a little bit on East Carolina because of that. Uh, try not to get too, too optimistic, but everybody's back. And, and they did improve, uh, especially on defense, made, made some big, big strides on defense, still plenty of room for improvement, but they went from being one of the worst defenses in the country to 76th in our defensive team performance. And when you bring back all 11 starters, uh, plus, you know, throw in a, a couple of transfers that could help uh, solidify some positions, add a little competition, um, that's, that's pretty significant, I think. So uh, they are a team that has a quarterback, has a long-time started quarterback in Old Mailers. He has shown some real promise. Uh, it sounds like, though he, uh, you know, has been a uh, really, a, you know, a, a productive runner. I believe he has over a 1,000 career rushing yards. Uh, sounds like they want to keep him in the pocket a little bit more. Hasn't been as productive as a, as a, a runner or wasn't last year as much. But now they've got what should be a pretty solid running game with two uh, sophomore uh, running backs, Raja Harris and, and Keaton Mitchell. 
both of which, you know, uh, flashed big potential at times last year. Tyler Snead has been, you know, just a, a do everything kind of guy in the slot. CJ Johnson is a, a big target, had 21 yards per catch last year, had multiple times, multiple drops in the end zone, which on the one hand, you know, that, that, is a little concerning. Drops are, are certainly a bad thing, but it shows he could have had a, an even better year than he did. And, and he still ended up leading the team uh, in touchdowns and, and um, you know, was an explosive option at, at receiver. So uh, the offensive line is experienced. It wasn't particularly good last year. They ranked 115th in O-line performance, but, uh, you know, all five starters back, plus they threw in another uh, transfer and and have an opportunity, I think, to to grow a little bit. But uh, I'm I'm intrigued. I think uh, more by the defense. I, I've you know was impressed that they took a step forward last year, and I want to know are the, are they going to just be able to maintain that level? Is this a top eighty defense, or does that extra year of experience and a few talented guys? I mean, uh, uh, Jare Wilson. Former defensive back has moved to linebacker, barely over 200 pounds, but pretty impressive when you watch him play. Uh, Jaquan McMillan at corner is solid, uh, all AC or all AAC performer, um, and Malik Fleming not bad either. So they actually have a, a pretty good uh, secondary overall. Talented guys, some some playmakers in that back seven, and I wonder if you know a full year together, a full off season, maybe. East Carolina could actually be one of those teams that uh, has actually benefited from, you know, just a, a year of experience. And, and we always wrestle with that a little bit just because a team's experience doesn't mean they're going to be any better. But, you know, there are some cases where, where that certainly helps. And it's possible that East Carolina could take an, uh, another step forward defensively. I think to get to a bowl game, they will have to. I think they would have to be, you know, instead of a top 80 defense, uh, maybe a top 60 defense. And, and that seems attainable. This is a pretty tough schedule. They, they play the 75th ranked schedule, which is kind of middle of the pack in, in, uh, in the American, but still some, some tough opponents. I mean, the non-conference schedule, first three games is, is pretty difficult with, uh, Appalachian states are number one ranked Sunbelt team, um, South Carolina and SEC team, even though we do have East Carolina as a, a tiny, tiny favorite in that game, that they're probably not going to be a favorite when that, uh, line comes up, you know, from, from odds makers. So, um, then Marshall, the third game, uh, our top rated conference USA team. So that's really difficult, but there are, there are winnable games. They're going to have to, to, pull off an upset or two to get to a bowl game, but we expect five wins if they take care of business in the games that they're favored and then, you know, knock off a, a one or two where they're a coin flip. They're less than an uh, field goal underdog against Tulane. For example, they're less than a touchdown underdog against Memphis. You know, pick off one of those and, and we could see East Carolina in a bowl for the first time in a while. So uh, they're, they're a really, really interesting team because they're moving in the right direction and they've got uh, very few just glaring holes. I would say that the line of scrimmage probably is that biggest area of concern, but everybody is back. 
that played last year. And, and yeah, I know they lost a, a talented offensive lineman, Dante Smith, who was drafted in the fourth round, but um, you know, he didn't play but one game. So other than that, everybody else is, is back on the line of scrimmage. We just have to see if, if experience does equal um, improvement doesn't always, but you know, if, if it does, then I think East Carolina is absolutely a, a, a got a chance to get to uh, a bowl game this year. What do you think here, Xavier? Because when you look at this team, it, when you look at the schedule, it looks like five guaranteed losses, I would say. I would say App State, they yeah. can't beat. I would say Marshall, they can't beat. UCF, Houston, and Cincinnati all look like automatic losses. Uh, they play Charleston. Uh, that that might be their only automatic win on, on the schedule. Maybe USF is an auto win for most teams. But this the outcome variable for this team is enormous because I think they also have five games that just based on CFB winning edge projections, they're within 10% to win or lose. Uh, and that includes a game against South Carolina, Tulane, yep. Uh, you know, Temple, Memphis, Navy, all in here. These games could all go uh, win or loss for ECU. So this is a, it's impossible to, for me to bet this win total for this team. Yeah. I mean, I, here's the thing about ECU. They could very well end up with seven wins this year. I know that we have some guaranteed, obviously, some of the ones we're pretty confident in with App State, uh, UCF, or I'm sorry, Cincinnati, um, and UCF, excuse me. So, you know, I, I think that outside of those three games, it's funny to me that South Carolina is a toss-up or it's not as much of a blowout as we as people probably think um, because I, I give them a chance, especially with that being a home game, to at least make it competitive and possibly give South Carolina no loss in that one. Uh, my biggest thing with them is going to be confidence. And when you look at their schedule, there's there's a part here, uh, October through the – right before the Cincinnati game. So the last week of October through November 20th, where they could very well roll off three or four. And I think that would really help their cause to possibly get to a bowl game. That's against USF, Temple, Memphis, and uh, Navy. I think they can win three of those four games, if not all four of them. Uh, And that's really where, for me, they're going to have to find some type of confidence in this year because the first six games of the season, probably at best you're thinking three and three. You know, App State, South Carolina, Marshall, uh, Charleston Southern, Tulane, and UCF. You're thinking three and three at best, and really, it's gonna be it's gonna come down to that October to November 20th window where they're gonna have an opportunity here to really, you know, put a staple and put a stand on whether or not they're gonna win six games. My biggest issue, my biggest concern with Ace Carolina is whether or not they'll be able to. It's really hard making that jump sometimes from being a team that's been rather, you know, rather bad, a middling team at the very best. And, you know, you're starting to get some steam, whether or not that stench around the team of being just okay kind of sticks. And, you know, Nick's talked about the amount of returning production they have. You know, my old saying on this podcast, this older garbage stinks. Like, is it is something where they have it's a culture issue? And so there's games that they end up losing late that. You know, for a team that is tip is used to winning, okay, you lost it, you move on. But is it a snowball effect that ends up happening this year where they lose a couple of games early on, and now they're looking at maybe you know they're two and four instead of three and three in that first six. Now they're on an uphill battle, and will they just fold or will they decide that we're gonna have to roll off? You know, 
four of our next six to possibly get to a bowl game. And so that, that kind of, you know, and, you know, even with all the return production with the, the transfers that came in, which I think they did an amazing job in the transfer portal um, this year, you know, bringing in 11 transfers from, from some big schools. And to Nick's credit about the defense, you know, they brought in some defensive talent from Oklahoma. They bring in some defensive talent uh, uh, from Michigan State to bolster a defense that was getting better. How much better would that defense need to be, though, to be a bowl team? You know, I don't know. Nick probably doesn't have it on hand. But what was the lowest ranked defense of any bowl team last year? I'd be surprised if they were in the 70s. Uh, now, obviously, I could be wrong about that, but I'd be shocked if they were in the 70s, uh, if they were to be a bowl team last year. So that's my biggest thing with Eastern Carolina. Will they be able to make that jump into the middle part of the conference? It's hard to get out the basement. It's really hard to get out of your mom's basement. So let's see if they could do it. Uh, and it's it's and once you're able to, it's a little bit easier after that uh, to kind of stake your claim, but it's really difficult to get out of your mom's basement. But what I will say about that is, Recruiting-wise, they're getting better in 2022. They didn't do a really good job in 2021, but we learned last week that the tra- they, they really hit the transfer portal hard, and we learned last week that 247 does not put that in their trans- in their uh, recruiting rankings. So even though they only brought in you know, 14 kids from high school and finished with the eighth class in the AAC with 11 transfers, some of which from some very big Power 5 teams, it would have definitely given them a better overall ranking. Um, so I think things are pointing in the right direction for Eastern Carolina. But as of right now, I'm not confident saying that there'll be a bowl team next year. I think I would be confident with saying five wins. So I think they'll stay where they're you know projected to be. I don't think they'll go over that though. Real quick on on uh, Xavier's point, the there were some bad defenses last year that that did get to bowl. So it's it's certainly not impossible. I mean, North Texas ranked 128th in our defensive team performance, and and part of that was was their bowl performance that, that they just got absolutely uh destroyed against the Appalachian State running game. But you know, there were there were a few in the in the one hundred. So it's not out of the realm of, of possibility uh that East Carolina could still just sort of maintain their level as a as a top eighty defense and, and get to a bowl. But I think that I, I just, you know, they, they haven't been able to, their offense is, is solid, but it hasn't been good enough to overcome a weak defense. So I think uh, my point, the point I was, I guess, trying to to get to is maybe because of that, I feel like, you know, the offense is good, but I don't necessarily know they're going to be able to take a much bigger step since most everybody has been there for for a couple of years. There's still probably some growth uh, available to them, but uh, I I just you know it, it seems to me that the hurdle for them specifically has been defense. But you know it it'll it they're they're a team that I mean they were beating SMU 42 to seven and a half. I mean they can they can put it together in any given week. They just haven't been able to to be consistent enough. So. Uh, we shall see, of course. Uh, okay, moving over to Houston here. We have Houston at 44. Uh, eight games canceled in 2020. Just like, how did they even get a season in? Uh, a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, they did finish 3-5, three and 3-3 three and three in the conference. They lost 28-14 to 14 to Hawaii in the New Mexico Bowl. But we have them at 9-3. and three. Their DK win total is 8.5. We have them favored to win 12 talent edges in 9. So, Nick, this seems like a pretty bettable number to me here. What do we think about the Cougars for 2021? 
Yeah, I tweeted it out a couple of days ago. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, while we're preparing for podcasts and, and things like that, I will spend, you know, most of, of that week really drilling down on just the teams in that conference, unless there's some sort of major news, uh, you know, transfers, injuries, that sort of stuff that I need to go in and, and do some adjustments on, on our uh, FBS team profiles. And I just hadn't visited the Houston page in a while, quite honestly, until I started uh, turning the page to, to prep for this pod. And yeah, Houston is favored in all 12 games, according to our projections. And and that was a surprise to me. I mean, I knew the number was, was high, uh, but it, it, I guess, didn't resonate until this week I saw that. And there are obviously uh, toss-ups. I mean, they're a less than a one-point favorite uh, on the road at Tulsa, according to our projections, less than a field goal against Tulane, right around a field goal, SMU, uh, four points against Texas Tech. So, I mean, there, there are plenty of games that will go either way, and, and that's why our projection is down at 8.6, even though uh, we do have them favored to win in 12. There just are some 50-50 shots that, that you would expect won't go uh, their way. And part of that is because, you know, can we really trust a, a Dana Holgerson coached Houston team? That's something that the last couple of years, our projections have been pretty high on Houston. They've recruited well. They've had some productive players. They brought in a ton of transfers, but that hasn't necessarily uh, all added up to uh, enough wins. And what what do we expect? Do we you know, really expect they're going to be able to, to turn the corner. And, and, you know, I'd certainly have my hesitations, but from a talent standpoint, this is a really, really solid team. Uh, and, and they do have the quarterback position figured out. Clayton Toon hasn't really been a full season starter, but he's been a starter in, in parts of two years. Had some, uh, you know, two years ago, Derek King started the year. Uh, and then he took over afterward. He, he, uh, has been banged up a little bit in the past and, and missed some time, but he's he's really good. I mean, he's he's a solid passer. He is much faster than I expected. I mean, there there were a couple of games that I tried to catch uh, pieces of this week where I saw him just run away from defenders and long touchdown runs. Uh, so he's he's a a dual threat quarterback capable of. Uh, you know, hurting defenses in in multiple ways. He's got what is on paper a pretty good offensive line. They were top fifty, right, or fifty one in in our offensive line performance rankings last year, team performance. Uh, but then they added two starters, one of which was a thirty five game starter at Louisiana Tech. You'd expect to to come in and and unseat the incumbent at center. And then everything I've read about uh, Tank Jenkins, the transfer right guard from Texas A&M, seems to indicate that he's expected to come in and, and be a starter as well. So you return a decent and, and pretty experienced offensive line, but add uh, some talent to that mix. The only real question is who's going to step up as a playmaker. Um, they've got you know Nathaniel Dell is the leading returning wide receiver, Chris Trahan as a, a tight end that I think has uh, some potential. And there are other guys on the roster, certainly, and, and guys that have had moments here or there 
returners, you know, Bryson Smith and, and Jeremy Singleton, but also transfers like Sean Carter from Texas Tech. Uh, there's, you know, Jalen Irwin, Bryson Jackson. Um, they, they've brought in players to, you know, compete for jobs and to become uh, playmakers. We just haven't quite seen them develop quite to that level yet. And then, you know, Marquez Stevenson is uh, going to be fairly difficult to replace, even though he was in and out of the lineup last year because of injury, but a six-round draft pick. So Houston's a, a really interesting offensive team, and they're kind of the opposite of another team that we'll talk about a little bit later because Houston quarterback, offensive line, I think they've got figured it out. Running back, receiver, I'm, I'm curious as, as to uh, who's going to you know step up and, and make plays. Defensively, they lost a first-round pick. Peyton Turner uh, was the 28th overall pick from – uh, or by the uh, the New Orleans Saints, and then Grant Stewart, who, who played a lot of football over the last couple of years, uh, was with the last pick in in the draft. So you know that's certainly some talent walking out, but the you know the transfers coming in in years past, and, and a couple this year as well. Latrell Bankston transfer from Iowa State. Uh, we right now have him as the backup defensive tackle, but I've seen some some things to indicate that he could. Uh, certainly step up into a starting role. But, you know, other guys on the defense have, have been there multiple years now who are in starting positions, guys like Deontay Anderson, who's a 100-rated player, um, especially in the secondary, Marcus Jones, good corner, All-American type return man. Uh, as an example, Hazan Hippolyte, uh, a transfer. They've got a couple of Juco guys you know, who are starters. So that that seems to be the unit where they've tried to go out and get more talented since Holgerson has, has taken over and they've, you know, they've, they've shown promise. They were 51st in our defensive team performance last year, but I, I think that they could certainly be better. And, and, you know, we'll maybe uh, might take a, a, a week or two to figure out who's going to step in and, and be a disruptive pass rusher like Peyton uh, Turner was, but you know, there, there are a few real weak spots. They are ex- Experienced. They've gotten more and more talented each of the last few years. They haven't put it together together on the field, but as you mentioned, eight games canceled, uh, half of which at least weren't their fault. I mean, they they had their own issues later on, but they had what their first three games canceled uh, almost right day or two before kickoff. So uh, problems with the opponent, but but. It's really, you know, they, 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 it was difficult for them to find consistency, I think, in part because of that. The other part is, I don't know if they're, uh, you know, I don't know how much of that is the coaching staff. So uh, I'm curious. On paper, they look great. Favor to win 12 games, talent edges in nine, even our stats only model, um, you know, which, which of course looks back at, at past results, past statistics to see how well a team stacks up, even that is in the ballpark of this win total. So yeah, I'd be tempted. I'd be tempted to bet it. Uh, the strength of schedule is the weakest in the conference by a wide margin over uh, 25 spots worse than, than the next easiest schedule in the league, according to our numbers. So there, there are a lot of reasons to like Houston. The only real hesitation I have is that they just haven't been that 
good each of the last two years. So uh, I, I want to believe it. I'm tempted to say I'll see it when I believe it, but just, you know, based on the talent, I'm, I'm really, really tempted to say, yeah, Houston over eight man. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get out of your mom's basement. Yeah. I mean, it it just, you're absolutely right here. And it, it, this looks like a very bettable number to me. I mean, this, you know, you're going to win against Grambling, Navy, uh, East Carolina, Mm -hmm. uh, USF, uh, and, and, uh, UConn, uh, those are guarantees. And then you have big favors, uh, in your way in, uh, rice, you're favorited against Tulsa, Tulane, SMU, uh, USF, Memphis, Temple, like your favorites in all those games. So this eight and a half number, uh, at least as it stands right now, obviously, like Nick said, uh, you know, we don't know if it's bad coaching or not being able to play games, not getting you momentum last season. But as far as the talent goes, this looks like a pretty bettable number for Houston's Javier. Yeah, I, I don't see why not. You know, and even the games in which you talked about that, you know, that we feel are maybe more competitive, like an SMU, maybe a Memphis, or at home. You know, they even get those games at home, which for me adds a bit of, you know, lets me allows me to lean more to Houston's side too. I will say this, with the lack of play that they had last year, I'm a little bit concerned about maybe early on in the year starting slow um, and, and finding their footing a little bit. You know, when you haven't played as many games – Maybe a fatigue, from a fatigue factor, how will they hold up all season uh, from a durability factor with only playing as many games as they did last year? That's a little bit of a concern for me. Uh, however, outside of that, I, I I love Houston. I love betting on Houston. Uh, I've put enough bets in. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna refrain from a bet on this podcast. I think I'm like <laughs> seven bets in. I'm, I'm. I think I'm at the lowest. I think I'm at like seven thousand or eight thousand uh, in, in our betting. So. I think I've done enough betting for a little bit. I'm going to take a break. Uh, but if you would like to bet on Houston, I can't. I don't see why not. This is an amazing bet uh, to try out. They, they they are a team, in my opinion, outside of and really not even against Texas Tech. But outside of the Texas Tech game, I don't see why they can't run the table um, and and you know compete for for AAC title this year uh, with the lack of strength of schedule. You know, you really don't you know, see the other side of the conference's best people. They avoid UCF. They avoid Cincinnati. Uh, and so I do not see why they cannot do it. From the, it, it. Put it to you simply, for them, it would completely, as we're talking right now, obviously when the season starts, things change. Teams look better. Some teams look worse. But as of right now, it would be on Houston as to why they did not make, you know, the AA, or, or did not compete for AAC title this year, um, looking at their schedule. I will say, Nick, like you, like you alluded to, we haven't seen Dana Hogerson have a pretty have a good tenure at Houston as of right now. We haven't really seen him be able to put the pieces together like we kind of saw him able to do. Uh, but this would be the year to do it. You know, uh, I remember at West Virginia, you know, he was up and down there too. You know, and, and he kind of capitalized on some down years and was able to get West Virginia to the Orange Bowl. I'm not saying that obviously Houston's going to an Orange Bowl, but if any year to capitalize, it's this one. You know. Um, I think they're going to be doing so in the recruiting space as well. They need to. Houston is actually a, a, a pretty weird space in that they're because of where they are location, they're able to really recruit kind of Texas's Texas A&M's and like Oklahoma's like the people that they don't take. A lot of kids end up going to Houston from there. You know, they, you look at their recruiting breakdown, 10 of their recruits this past year were from Texas. So they do a really good job of 
still recruiting their state and recruiting the guys who are not necessarily highly ranked, high ranked enough to go to a Texas and A&M or, uh, or an Oklahoma and things like that. So they've done a really good job in recruiting that they need to get back to that. They had a down year this year, uh, finishing 83rd nationally and finishing seventh in the AAC, but I don't see, think that would last uh, early indications going into 2022 are not that bright either. Uh, so like, this is what I'm saying. Got to pick it up currently in 2022, they ranked 103rd and ninth in the AAC. So they've got to really turn that around if they're going to, uh, you know, obviously win on the field, but I think a good year, like the one we're talking about them possibly having is absolutely an opportunity for them to do so. So I don't see why Houston can't go over. It'll really just be on Houston and a Dana Holgerson. If they don't quick question for both of you guys, if Dana Holgerson has a really down year, what's the, what's the temperature of his seat? I think it's uh, I think it's warm right now, okay. but not hot. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I don't know if uh, it would be a real bad year would sink him, but I think mm-hmm. it'd have to be pretty bad. Nick, okay. what do you think? Well, everybody points to a couple of years ago the athletic director. Uh, it was either right after they fired Major Applewhite or or right when they hired Dana Holgerson, but said you know seven wins isn't good enough in Houston. Something along those lines. We don't you know we we. Uh, don't put up with that sort of thing. And, and uh, last year they had a losing record. So, uh, it, you know, I, I, I think that he's gotten a little bit of a grace period has kind of gotten to do it his way through uh, the last couple of years roster wise and, and going so heavy into transfers. Uh, I, I think if it's a bad year, like a, a another losing season, then there's certainly a, a chance. Um, if it's a an improved year, but still not a great year, a seven win season, something like that, my my instinct would be that he'd get another shot at it, but that he'd have to you know win or else in 2022. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh... It, it, it could if, if they don't make I mean, this schedule looks winnable, Xavier. So if they don't, uh, you know, if they don't get to that seven win mark, eight win mark, uh, you know, if he's not fired, he's definitely going to be on a hot seat going into 2022. Right. Oh, absolutely. You would have to think so at this point. You know, the grace period last year to an extent was the fact that they didn't play any games. So you would think right. if he does not have a good year this year, especially with all of the pointing to him having a, a weakened schedule. And being able to run the table, you know that AD is absolutely like looking at at this as all right, Dana, it's time to get it done. We haven't right. had it. We haven't had it. Well, when's the, Nick and you? I don't know if you have this on hand. When's the last time they, they made a bowl game last season? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, they, oh, <laughs> every team was eligible last. Year. They played so. in the bowl. Yeah, it was. It was. I keep, I keep forgetting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting, like, okay, so you know what? I'm, I'm going to go and say it. Was the last time they made a bowl game legitimately? <laughs> yeah, legitimately, sure. Yeah, they got blown. They got beat seven. Uh... They got they got beat seventy to fourteen in 2018 by Army. That was the one where Army just could do yeah. anything he wanted. That was yep. the major Applewhite. Had he already been fired at that point, Nick? No, I think I think that, that was the last was game before he got fired. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like after he had that blow up with Ed Oliver on the on the sideline, just the, the, no one wanted to play for him anymore, and it it obviously showed in that bowl game when they got destroyed. So yeah, that's uh, it, it's they have the talent, like we said, talent edge in a bunch of games here. But uh, you know, 
Dana Holgerson may be holding them back. So we, we need to, I think that's what we'll find out this year. All right. So going over to Memphis here and it's tough to see Memphis ranked uh, by our stuff at 93. Uh, just tough to see them in that, you know, especially coming off Houston with their weird year at 44, but they beat FAU in their bowl game 25 to 10 last year. Uh, to finish eight three five and three in conference, that was Ryan Silverfield's first season as a head coach. For, tough year to draw as a first year head coach in twenty twenty, obviously. Um, but they won four games by a combined eight points, which is why you see them so low ranked. Sure, they won eight games, but half of them were by fewer than eight points total. So that's a lot of coin flip coin flip games. Their DK total is seven and a half. Because of people like me who think, yeah, seven and a half, that, that looks like a low number for Memphis traditionally. Uh, six and six is their record for us. We have them favored to win in six. Town edges in nine, though. So uh, going to be a, a interesting year for Memphis, to say the least, Nick. Yeah, and, and Memphis is one of those handful of teams each year. Uh, it seems that, that they're either going to make us look really smart or really stupid. Uh, and by us, I mean me, because I am the one that runs the numbers. So uh, it's it's uh, I, I'm torn on Memphis, quite honestly. I mean, they won eight games last year. They've won at least eight games every year since 2013. So it's hard to look at them and, and expect that they're going to regress back to a 500 level team or, or, or worse even. And 93rd in, in our power ratings, uh, you know, I, I mentioned in last uh, in our last preview with Nevada uh, was our lowest rated bowl team in, in 2019. And they were like 103. So Memphis would be in that range of if they were six and six and a bowl game uh, type team, you know, they would be among the lowest rated uh, bowl teams you would expect. So it's, it's, uh, surprising to see. I was, uh, very surprised when our, our ratings, you know, first populated for the, the 2021 season and, and to see them this low, but you know, maybe, maybe it's an opportunity and, and I'm certainly not going to guarantee anything. I, I, I never do. Uh, so I'm, I'm not quite the person to, to, uh, so yeah, absolutely, we've got Memphis figured out because they have talent edges in nine games, as you mentioned. Our stats model has them favored in ten. I mean, past results have been really, really good, and and so it's difficult for me to to expect a team to drop off by two or three wins. But they're kind of the opposite of of Houston, which uh, gives me reason to think, you know okay, maybe we're on to something. They've got turnover at quarterback. You know, Houston has uh, the quarterback situation figured out. If I'm going to choose, which would I rather have, a, a multi-year, you know, or at least part of multiple years starter quarterback who's been impressive uh, at times or really an unproven commodity. And yeah, Grant Cannell has starting experience at Arizona, but, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't great last year. I, I saw a lot that I liked in 2019, but last season they, you know, he, he struggled and coming in, in, in the spring, uh, according to the athletic and their state of the program, uh, they split quarterback reps four ways in the spring. So it's not like he 
ran away with the job. He's still competing with Peter Parrish. It sounded like at certain points in the spring that Keelan Brown, a redshirt freshman, is a legitimate contender in that uh, quarterback race. And they seem to be, you know, and, and who knows uh, how exactly to read uh, coach speak, but they seem really, really excited about Seth Hennigan, uh, you know, that the, the freshman that they've got coming in this year as a quarterback. So it sounds like he is in uh, a battle for this position. So we do have him listed as a starter. He's the highest rated quarterback on the roster, according to our formula. So, you know, we, we kind of expect the best case scenario there as far as our projections go. But they also have some questions on the offensive line. They lost, you know, one of the best offensive linemen in certainly in, in the AAC. And Obina Easy, who transferred to TCU, seemed like probably would have been a, a draft pick had he uh, gone into uh, the draft after this year or after last year, excuse me. Uh, they didn't play with Kenneth Gainwell last year, but he's a, a, a drafted player who would have been really nice to have. And the running, uh, the rushing attack looked okay in the first half of the season, but got kind of worse and worse uh, toward the end of the year. And, and so that's a bit of a concern. They have uh, a turnover on the offensive line. Uh, or, you know, more turnover on the offensive line. It wasn't just easy. They also lost uh, their starting center. They're going to be relying probably on two uh, transfers coming in, one of which really, really highly rated Devontae Dobbs uh, was a you know, borderline five-star guy a few years ago at Michigan State, but he's played four career games and, and 57 snaps, so wasn't able to, to solidify a position there. Um, so, I, you know, I, I've got some concerns with with quarterback in the offensive line they do at least have some playmakers you expect that the running back position even though it, it you know they weren't able to to run quite as well toward the end of the year rodriguez clark asa martin kylan watkins all those guys are back showed promise at different times clark was the leading rusher but martin uh seemed to to maybe at least pull even with him if not uh pass him toward the end of the year um, so, you know, and Watkins, the guy who can do a, a couple of different things, use him as a, uh, receiver out of the backfield and move him around Calvin Austin, the third really exciting player at times. Uh, one of the better receivers in the American Sean Dykes is a, uh, an athletic tight end who had some huge games at the beginning of the year, especially Javon Ivory is, is, uh, you know, uh, exciting, I think has a bright future. They did lose Taj Washington as a transfer. And, you know, that, that is uh, something that, that uh, worries me just a little bit. I mean, in our transfers out section in our uh, team profiles, we've got 15 guys listed. And some of them, four of them, are returning starters. And plenty of others are, are you know, guys who contributed as well. So they lost almost 3,000 snaps from last year's eight-win team that might have been, you know, somewhat fortunate to win those eight games when you consider looking at post-game win expectancies, according to collegefootballdata.com. They were 37% against SMU, won that game by three. They were 32% against USF, won that game by one. They were 5% against Navy, 
won that game 10 to 7, and then 55% against Houston, which they won 30 to 27. So not only were they close games, they were close games that they won when statistically you would expect uh, that, that they would have you know lost those games if they played those 100 times, uh, you know, so... I've, I've got some I've got some concerns about Memphis. Uh, they they were good but not great. They've got a question at quarterback. The offensive line has some some issues, maybe or, or at least some questions. And they're losing talented, experienced starting players uh, to the transfer portal. And and they've done a good job of filling some of those holes. They also brought in Shamar Nash, wide receiver from Arkansas. They brought in a corner, Julian Barnett from uh, Michigan State, who's also played wide receiver in the past, but similar to Dobbs was a, a fringe five-star guy, really, really high four-star player. So maybe they hit on those guys. Maybe they hit on Jakar Robinson, the transfer from Cincinnati, who you expect to be the starting center. Uh, they brought in Devon Robinson, a, a defensive tackle from Mississippi State. Uh, so you know, there are there are at least guys that they have slotted into those roles to fill those uh, you know question marks, those empty spots on the depth chart. But you kind of have to hit on all of those, I think, for for Memphis to be able to maintain their high level of play. And it's difficult to hit on every transfer. So. I I lean with our official projection. Our our six wins or our favored to win six games, our five point six seven projected win total. This feels like a six win team to me. So even though our town edge is over the seven and a half, even though the stats only model is is way over the seven and a half, I've already bet Memphis under under uh, uh, the seven and a half, and and so it's. It, it feels weird to say because they've been so good in, in years past, but drilling down and, and thinking about where I've got questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe it. So uh, certainly, you know, we, we are much lower it seems on Memphis than most, most things that I've seen, they're a top 50 team. I, I think even one of the magazines uh, might have them as a, a top 40 type team. So uh, we could be the odd man out. We could be wrong. We could end up looking really, really stupid. And again, by waiting not high. But uh, I, I believe it. I, I think this Memphis team is is moving in the wrong direction. Um, and I, I just, I, I think we're going to see a step back. I think we're going to see at best a 7-5 Memphis team but it really seems to me like a, like a six and 16 this year. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think the biggest number that you mentioned there mentioned there, Nick, and, and correct me if I get it wrong, 3000 snaps missed, uh, or gone. Off the Good uh, Lord. Specifically 2834, but that same group of players, that same group of players who was, uh, you know, played the full season in, in 2019, they accounted for, uh, 3,636 snaps in 2019. So these are multi-year players. Right. That's a lot of talent to lose, plus a new quarterback, Xavier. Uh, what do you think about Memphis? It, it's a hard team to to know what to do with because they are divisive. Like I said, surprise when I see the number, but after hearing Nick break it down, it's not that surprising. Not at all. Uh, you know, what I will say is that typically when we talk about Memphis, and this is just the kind of weird, weird year that they're going to have, you know, typically we talk about their offense. You know, I don't know. I think every year I've done, we've done the podcast, we've talked about 
Brady White. We've talked about the offensive talent. We've talked about the weapons that he has. We've talked about that they're a team that could go for 40 every game if given the opportunity to. And this year, they're going to have to lean on their defense. You know, their defense ranks in the top 50 in every position except for linebacker going into the year. They have, uh, according to our numbers, the fifth-ranked defense in the AAC versus the seventh-ranked offense in the AAC. So, really, I mean, is it going to be a year where Memphis scores, like, 20 points and wins ball games. I mean, how weird would that be to see that uh, week in and week out? I just don't understand if they can have, I don't think they can have that kind of cultural shift and be successful. Uh, this is a team, like we talked, like I said, has been an offensive juggernaut throughout the AAC for years. And for them to now have to have a, a more defensively talented team, a team that might lean on their defense to win ball games. You're going to see some struggles. You're going to see some absolute headaches. I will say the the positive about them when you look at their scheduling is their schedule isn't ridiculously difficult. You know, yes, they have to play UCF at UCF. They have to go to Tulsa. They play Mississippi State. But really outside of that, I think a lot of these games are going to be toss-ups for them. Um, and it's really going to be based off of whether their offense can find its footing. You know, Nick hit around the head. They don't know who the quarterback is. They they have no clue. They have a, a guy who currently is probably you know thought of as you know a, a potential the guy. But I think you'll see a revolving door all season. And I think with that being the case, you'll see no cohesion and a lack of consistency all year from the quarterback position. That's going to throw a wrench into any type of for me uh, you know bowl or a seven and a half win total. I'm gonna go under here. I think this is still a bowl team. Uh, but I think six wins is what I'm comfortable with. I think you'll see a very inconsistent ball club week in and week out. Um, and it's going to be because of the fact that they don't have, for the first time in a long time, they don't have a part of their team that they can that they know game in and game out is going to give them X. You know, their defense, yes, although it is the most talented part of their team, we haven't seen Memphis's defense be great over the last couple of years. So who's to say, even though they're more talented than the offense, finally, they're actually going to show that on the field week in and week out. We've been able to lean on the fact that they've always had an explosive offense, but that offense is now no longer there. And so with that, without having a real identity there, I'm afraid that this is not going to be a team that is going to be able to have seven to eight wins this year. Uh, you know, so seven and a half win total, I think is a little, it's, it's too high because to go over that, you're talking eight or nine wins and this isn't an eight or nine win ball club. Uh, and so I, and even with the, the lack of strength of schedule, I think that might be helping out or that is helping out why they are a seven and a half, uh, win, you know, team at this point, according to DraftKings. But I can't say that. I can't I can't do that, even with the strength of schedule. This is going to be a team that is going to possibly win by 25 one week and then lose by 12 the next week because that's how inconsistent I think their offense is going to be all the year with that revolving door at the quarterback position. With the, you know, Nick was talking about the quarterback position, but they lose two guys, you know, on their offense at the skill positions that were not only dynamic, but could do it all. Demonte Cox, Cox could go in the backfield. He could be a, a receiver. He could. He literally, they literally put him everywhere. Same thing with Kenneth Gainwell. He's probably, and we talked about this on you know your draft podcast, Scott. Kenneth Gainwell is probably one of the best pass catchers of any running back in in the draft this year. And they had Gibson before him. Like exactly. it, you know, Watkins is going to do a lot of that too. But we just is he going to be the next guy? We're not a hundred percent yet. So exactly. You know, and when you have guys that not only do what they do, what their position says they are, but when they're able to, you know, when you're able to motion a guy like Kenneth Gainwell out and now he's a matchup nightmare as well, all of those things are just going to have to be, they're going to have to find guys to fill those holes. Um, and when you have one guy who could fill, you know, multiple positions, now you have to have a bunch of guys fill that those positions. And so that kind of, that that's just 
making me really weary about that seven and a half. I would go under if I was betting on Memphis. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Let's go over to Navy. And uh, Navy rebounded from an embarrassing 55-3 loss to BYU. And this game was on TV. And what I remember about this one, Nick, is Bill Belichick uh, talking for like almost the entirety of the third quarter as the game was like 42 to three at that point or whatever. And that's it was right. Just, yeah. Which is BYU running and running and running and Bill, Bill Belichick. Yeah. My father was a coach at Navy for a while and uh, it was a great, you know, just being Bill <laughs> Belichick. Um, but uh, they, they, they had a rough year. They did. Uh, they, they won three of their next four after that, but then the offense just completely broke and they lost uh, five games to end the season, finishing three and seven, three and four in conference. We have them at three and nine. Their DK total is three and a half. Favored to win zero games from us, and Town edges in zero games from us. So uh, we know the, the uh, academies are harder to uh, get recruits into, but um, looks like Navy is going to be in for a rough twenty twenty one. Nick, it's it's really difficult for me because you know this is a this is a similar uh, feeling to Memphis. There's reason for me to expect that we are underrating Navy. Uh, we've talked plenty of times that there are certain teams and specifically teams that play a uh, particular style of play, whether it's triple option, whether it's you know recruiting at this level that that military academies uh, recruit where uh, you know they consistently rank in the triple digits in, in our recruiting strength numbers they consistently rank in the triple digits in our uh, positioning unit ratings our, our talent numbers position by position but sometimes they you know that works for them and, and they're able to uh, uh, you know overachieve exceed expectations whatever you want to call it and Navy has certainly done that at at times in the past. Two years ago, they had the the biggest turnaround in, uh, I don't know if it was college football history, but it was on the list, and it was certainly the biggest turnaround of the season, uh, where they went from 10 wins to 11 losses, and then last year, of course, you know, regressed back to uh, the level we saw. You mentioned that game against BYU, and, and they were just getting absolutely uh, destroyed, and the big talking point afterward was uh, head coach Kim Niamatololo said uh, they just didn't do any tackling in fall camp and, and, you know, aired on the side of caution with uh, COVID protocols and, and all of that. And they decided, you know, hey, we, we obviously can't do this anymore. We weren't ready to play. We got ourselves embarrassed. We didn't know at the time how good BYU really was. I mean, they might have played that game late in the year and BYU still could have beat them 55 to three, even after they had uh, changed their practice habits and, and all of that. But they're, they're sound like, and, and I've done probably more reading about Navy than any uh, other team in, in the conference, just because they're somewhat similar to last week when we talked about Air Force. It's kind of hard to, to figure out uh, the depth chart, who's, who's coming up, what senior that we've never uh, seen on the field before is going to be uh, a full-time starter this year, that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading quotes about how they're uh, a different team. I mean, they, they look completely different. And, and uh, Nia Matalolo said, you know, something along the lines of uh, they look better. They look better in spring practice than they did at any point last year. They're talking about 
you know, a, a center who is probably the most talented offensive line we've had in my 20 years of being here, he said, in, in the athletics uh, right up this spring. And, and you know, that's a guy who didn't play at all, at all last year is Darylson um, Masanai, who, uh, you know, they bring back uh, Pierce Danbury at, at, at center. But anyway, that, that's kind of me going down a, a, a tangent that doesn't necessarily <laughs> matter. But but it's it's just, you know, I'm trying to dig in because our projections are so low on 80. Zero games are they favored to win. Zero talent edges. And even the stats model, which usually Navy does decently well uh, in just because they're able to, you know, limit opponent possessions they're able to run the ball really well most of the time they only are favored in one in our stats only uh model so i'm trying to find some reasons to expect more i'm trying to find uh you know where are we wrong here and this navy team just might not be good uh there there are some potential reasons for optimism. Uh, Xavier Arline got, you know, three starts last year, played in five games. He seems closer to Malcolm Perry in style of play than uh, anybody else who was available to them last year. He, he didn't get, you know, much practice time or anything like that. Didn't play in a traditional triple option offense in high school. So, you know, didn't, wasn't able to, to come in and elevate that offense right away. But he's kind of, you know, built like somebody who they had such great success with in the past and is fast, can be dynamic on the ground. Maybe he overachieves. Maybe he is next Malcolm Perry or Keenan Reynolds. And, and this, you know, will be able to elevate this Navy team. But they've got turnover at fullback. We know the fullback carries a real heavy load. Nelson Smith uh, is is gone, graduated. They also lost. Uh, you know, starting slot back C.J. Williams, who is a, a dynamic guy at times, a big, big blow. And, and they've been, uh, you know, haven't haven't uh, said any details as to why. But Jamel Carruthers, who might have been the most talented, especially offensive player that they've got, a fullback who's you know in 2019 was really, really good. Uh, he's in the transfer portal, it sounds like ran afoul of, of uh, the honor code there at Navy. Sounds like, you know, the coaches thought that it was silly. They didn't go into any details, but but just sort of said rules are rules and we had to, you know, move on. So not only are they uh, losing guys to graduation and at a higher rate, because remember the, the service academies don't get that extra year of eligibility. Yeah. We talked about how our Air Force was in a uh, sort of a unique situation where they had a bunch of guys on defense who sat out the semester and were able to come back Navy didn't you know guys at Navy couldn't do that so they are 114th in overall returning production 125th on offense and the offense at Navy was the worst it has been in 20 years last year they ran for 177 yards per game which I've read multiple places was the lowest in the triple option era which goes back to 2002 for Navy so you know, they were a bad offense last year, and they are now going to be one of the most exper inexperienced offenses in the country this year. If the quarterback position is figured out and if the offensive line improves because they're able to, you know, do more blocking and, and what have you, yeah, maybe they take a step forward. 
but it's it's hard to just look and, and assume they're going to get better. And I do like Chance Warren, you know, slot back, play some wide receiver. It sounded like this time last year he might uh, be a, a, a person who could uh, give him something at the quarterback position, but he didn't do very much last year, wasn't productive at all. They're wide receiver uh, starters, Michael Cooper and, and Mark Walker, that's the strength of the, the offense. And that's not really what you want in Navy uh, when your two best players, at least, uh, you know, from what we've seen in the past, are, are wide receivers. So I've heard some things that, that you know, our line doesn't necessarily have the job locked down. Ty, uh, Ty has been impressive, it seems. Uh, he is a bigger quarterback, 6'2", 220. Our line is, is built like Malcolm Perry at 5'9", 165. So, you know, maybe they decide, hey, we've got more uh, talent on the outside. Maybe we need to throw it a little bit more like we did last year. Perhaps Lavatai is, is the guy that can, you know, get them there. We know Navy is, is creative on offense and and does a, a you know has traditionally done a good job of, of trying to utilize their very best playmakers so yeah I could be surprised uh, and, and maybe somebody comes out of the woodwork and and becomes a star that that our numbers just wouldn't uh, expect or that I couldn't uh, you know think of or, or hadn't heard of yet but right now I mean this looks like the worst offense in college football they rank 130th in roster strength. They rank 125th in returning production. So I just, I'm struggling to be optimistic that they're going to be, you know, completely uh, improved on offense. Defensively, there are some things to like. Uh, Diego Fago is a, a, a guy who might, you know, be a, a, an NFL uh, type guy, undrafted free agent maybe, or, or, Potentially even in drafted. I mean, he's super, super productive, underrated player. Uh, is also big enough at 6'3 and, and close to 240 pounds. Uh, they are experienced on defense, even though, you know, those returning production numbers are uh, elite. It, it's way, way more than, than on offense 78%, 68 nationally. Three starters up front, both starters at the traditional linebacker positions, and then four out of five starters. In the secondary, including Michael McMorris, who was a stud in 2019, uh, Kevin Brennan and George, uh, John Marshall have both been exciting at times at, at uh, the safety positions. And then they have sort of hybrid linebacker safety as well that Marshall was re really, really good at. So they improved a lot on defense over the course of the year. And their defensive coordinator, uh, Brian Newberry, though he doesn't rank you know super high in our, our rankings, he's 80th but has a, the respect of, of opponents um, in that athletic write-up. They talked about how uh, they are you know, super aggressive under him, that they come after you from a lot of different angles. They're unique and, and difficult to prepare for, both on offense and defense. And we saw over the course of the year that he was able to, to kind of get that defense in a, a good working order by the end of the year. But – where are the points going to come from, you know? And, and so I struggle with this and, and three and a half seems low for Navy. You expect they're going to be competitive in every game. They're going to give teams their best effort. 
they are going to upset a team here and there, but I just I'm I'm struggling to to see how they get to three wins. They play the 24th ranked schedule in college football according to to our numbers. The by far the toughest in uh, the, well not by far, but but uh, there are two top 30 and then three top 40 schedules in in the AAC. But they are the, the they play the toughest schedule among all G5 teams. Uh, they get no gimmies whatsoever. The, the non-conference, they always, of course, play Army and Air Force. And then this year they draw Notre Dame. Well, they always play Notre Dame. But then Marshall. So there's no Patriot League team. There's no uh, gimme win. And then they don't play USF. So they don't play the lowest rated team in conference. So three wins. I mean, three and a half wins. I've been proven wrong plenty of times by Navy. <laughs> Kenny Amatololo, I respect completely uh, the job that he's done there but I just this seems like another bad Navy team I don't I don't see how they bounce back there's not Malcolm Perry uh, at least that that has you know that, that we've been able to see really I, I don't think that our line is Malcolm Perry at least not as a sophomore uh, Lavatai you know maybe he is I don't know but gosh I this looks like a two-win team, uh, the way we projected. So it, it does, and and Xavier, I mean, like Nick said, there are no gimmies. I mean, they're not favored in a single game. The closest, as far as just percentages that we have, by a wide margin, is their game against ECU. Uh, if we and that's at forty-five percent, and we know if ECU is clicking at this point in the year. That's going to be a big line in ECU's favor. So it's tough coming up with the W here on Navy's schedule. I don't know where I see it. Yeah, neither do I. And, I mean, here's the thing with Navy, right? And this is the thing with, with, with a team that runs an offense like they do. And if they can run it effectively. And to Nick's credit, he outlined how much turnover they're going to have on that offense. And how and the lack of talent in particular that they have on that offense as well coming you know going into this year, the thing about it that I will say this is there's I mean there's some games in here with, with some teams who play down I will say that SMU was one of them typically play down. We just got to talking about how good Houston could be, but we also understand how good Houston how bad Houston could be as well. They are a team that likes to play down. And Houston, if, if the if the triple option clicks. Then it's it hard for yeah. anybody to, exactly. to beat them, and and it, they slow down offenses. Like that's the whole purpose of it. Right. But when it's not clicking and you're not putting it's up ugly. points, it's so ugly. It's and, fifty-five to three yeah. to BYU. That's what it looks like when it's not working. Absolutely, and not only that, it's it, it's a quick off the field. It, they don't yeah. when, the, when the triple option is not working, they are in and out in in a matter of in a matter of seconds. Uh, you know and. So I agree with Nick here. I'm, I'm not going to go on this whole, like, you know, trying to figure out a way where Navy could possibly, uh, you know, put together a season where they have four or five. I'm, no, no, I'm not, that's not, that's, that's Nick's not job. looking that's at not the bright job. side at all. I nah, that's Nick's job. Nope. Uh, that is, that is <laughs> not my job here. Uh, it is especially not with Navy. Depressed? I felt depressed trying to, mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. do it because, because, you know, would I, if, if we're, flashing forward a full year, I right. could absolutely feel myself saying like, 
yeah, I didn't know if Navy was going to win a game, but of course they went seven and five and went to a bowl, you know, so it, it wouldn't shock me if they get there, but man, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm bumming myself out. Just, I just can't, I just can't get there. The only explanation is if the trip, you know, they, they find the missing piece in that triple option offense from last year. And how do you project, how do you expect that, that yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, you can't. You know, I, it's one of those situations where if they were to, it's not on your fault. It's not on the numbers' fault because everything points to Navy being a two, at tops three win ball club. Um, and yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I'm, I'm going to say under, even though three and a half isn't that much, yeah. and really the the ball just has to bounce the right way, and you know, in a couple of games for you to end up with three wins or with four wins, excuse me. But I, I just don't see it. And I think if it wasn't a team that when we think about Navy, they're not a team that brings in freshman quality as much. You know, if this was a team that was a, a part of the and I like to call it normal recruiting because academies don't recruit typical um, and they brought in, you know, and they were bringing in some some really good talent you know, four-star talent, and they just didn't look like they could get it put all together, you're like, well, maybe one game this guy decides to have an amazing ball game. But with Navy, typically speaking, you're looking for those senior-laden guys to really put it all together. And I just don't see where they're able to do that. And, you know, they haven't, they didn't show it last year. I don't think they'll show it this year. Uh, I think Navy's going to go under. Yeah, it's it looks like a long 2022 or 2021, excuse me, for uh, Navy. And uh, they're not even the lowest ranked team in this conference. So this is true. Uh, <laughs> let's go to SMU, who we have at 46. And they open up awesome five and oh, but then they had a bunch of injuries. Uh, they lost three of their last five, including back to backs to Tulsa and ECU to finish seven and three. DK has got their win total at six. We have them at seven and five, but favored to win eight. Town edges in nine. So this looks like it could be a possible betting number here, Nick. What do we think about SMU going into 2021? Yeah, finally, some, uh, you know, after after uh, being down on Navy and Memphis and, and being very cautious feeling about Houston, finally, I can talk somebody up. I, I, I like SMU this season. I, I think that uh, we've seen each of the last two years, they start strong. On the flip side, they finish, you know, pretty poorly. I mean, they were 8-0 in 2019, uh, as well as 5-0 and last year. But then they have a losing record in November and December over the past two seasons combined. So, you know, that's that's a little bit of a cause for concern. Um, you know, uh, head coach Sonny Dykes in, again, the athletic write-up. Fine. You know, I'm going to be referencing those quite a bit more since we're we're uh, getting into the the – AAC and the in the Power Five, most of them have been uh, profiled. Uh, but you know, he blamed lack of depth, um, injuries, as you mentioned. They haven't had Andrew Oberson uh, down the stretch in either of the last two years, who is one of the best wide receivers in college football when he's healthy. He just unfortunately hasn't been healthy uh, at the end of, of either the last couple of years. Um, but they have they have succeeded where Houston has tried. Uh, SMU has gone into the transfer portal, similar philosophy of, hey, you know, we're in Dallas. There are a ton of players here. They go off to other power fives. It doesn't work out. Maybe they get homesick, come back to SMU. And, you know, we're going to be one of the more talented teams uh, in the league. We're going to be more one of the more talented teams in, in the group of five. Houston, you know, has done the same thing. 
hasn't quite clicked yet. But SMU, they've been going to bowl games. They've been uh, you know, playing well and, and looking great at times. They've got real talent. Not only, you know, Reggie Robertson, who is a 99-rated player, will be a 100 very soon, uh, but Rushi Rice, Danny Gray, tight end Grant Calcaterra, who is a transfer from Oklahoma. Um, you know, they are the number three rated wide receiver and tight end group in our overall national position and unit ratings. So, you know, they are, they are solid there. At the running back position, uh, they're deep, and Ulysses Bentley, the fourth, exploded early last season, picked up 14 production points as a redshirt freshman. Uh, TJ McDaniels you know, w- was one of those guys who was injured, and, and they lost him after a few games. But they brought in Trey Siggers from North Texas, who's been a starter in the past, started seven games there, has had 11 production points, uh, You know, is going to give them uh, plenty to work with. And then, you know, Tyler Levine as well. So running back, they're good. Wide receiver, they're great. Offensive line, potentially great. Top 35 in offensive line team performance. Uh, They are eighth nationally in our O-line talent rankings. Jalen Thomas and Hayden Hawthorne both were uh, all AAC type players. All five starters are back. Uh, They've got 133 career starts among everybody on the roster on the offensive line. So, you know, offensively, they should be set. Uh, The question is quarterback, but they've got solid options there. They lost Shane Bouchelle, but Tanner Mordecai is a former, you know, four-star transfer from Oklahoma. One thing that uh, was pointed out to me that that didn't immediately, uh, you know, connect, he's a transfer from Oklahoma. Should you would expect be a pretty smooth transition because SMU's offensive coordinator is Garrett Riley. So you would think, you know, I don't know for sure necessarily, but you would think that the terminology would be pretty similar. We know they're a similar style of play, at least. Riley being an air raid guy, Dykes being an air raid guy. So, yeah, I think that Tanner Mordecai is going to be able to come in, pick up the system quickly, and be a, a productive starting quarterback for them. But if not, they brought in one of their best quarterback recruits ever in Preston Stone. I mean, he's a a name to know, going to be potentially a a star at SMU before it's all said and done. So I think Mordecai will be just fine at at worst and very, very good uh, at best. But, you know, there's a chance maybe Preston Stone's just that good that he comes in and and beats him out for this position. And then SMU really could, could take off. Defensively, you know, numbers-wise, statistically, they were not great. They were 74th in overall defensive team performance, 74th against the run, 89th against the pass. So there is some room to improve. They also must replace uh, their highest-drafted uh, player last year was Brandon Stevens, cornerback, was a third-round pick. So, you know, going to gonna, gonna uh, have a little bit of talent that needs some attending to. Richard McBride is also gone. Uh, who is a, a high 90s rated player at linebacker. But they've got talent. They've got, you know, they've recruited really well and, in, in, you know, getting better and better each year. Uh, but they have brought in transfers. They've got guys who have been in the program for quite a while. The back seven should be, you know, pretty good. Uh, they rank 56th in, in our back seven 
uh, position in unit ratings, but that's top four in the conference. So they are, uh, you know, going to be on par with just about everybody uh, in the league there defending the pass, the linebacker unit, even though they do lose. Uh, McBride, as I said, is a top 40 unit on paper, the, the uh, strength of that defense. And then they, you know, got even better by getting Isaac Slade Matua from uh, Oregon coming in. So they had three return starters and then add him into the mix as well. So, you know, they're they're talented on defense. And then they've got uh, a new coordinator there, Jim Levitt, who has a track record for improving defenses in his first year, which is not something you always see. Sometimes takes a little while. You know, a coach might say, oh, I need to, you know, uh, get the right personnel for my system and all of that. Well, either Lovett's been been uh, fortunate that, that he's had guys who could fit or he's made them fit because he's been a good first-year coordinator at places like Colorado, Oregon. Uh, you know, he, he has a, a long track record. Uh, he kind of <laughs> seems to to burn out pretty quickly and, and move uh, on to a, a new staff. Maybe he doesn't always click behind the scenes, but uh, he can he – can, coach up a defense or at least has in the past. So uh, unless for whatever reason, he, he's not able to recapture that. I think this SMU defense is going to take a step forward as well. I was really surprised to see that DraftKings has this number at six and I haven't done a, a wide ranging look to see if it's, you know, uh, six and a half, seven, something like that in other books, but that seems low. Um, seems really low to me, especially we've got them, as you said, favored in eight. Town Edge is a nine. Our stats only model really likes SMU. Part of that is is Levitt's improvement on defense because we go back and do a five year and three year weighted, uh, you know, on on the defensive uh, performance for for coordinators for both coordinators, offenses and defenses. Uh, but they've consistently been one of the better offenses in the group of five, and and you know I would expect nothing less. This this team ranked twenty third overall in. Uh, Offensive team performance, they ranked 11th in passing offense, top 40 rushing. And I think that, that they absolutely could uh, be top 30 in, in both this year. So as long as they stay relatively healthy, that's that's certainly been an issue. Uh, I think SMU is going to be very much in the mix for a conference title. I mean, you know, Cincinnati being that number one team and then who's, who's going to uh, challenge them for that uh, spot in the title game. UCF is our second highest rated team. And we talked about Houston being favored in every uh, every regular season game. I know SMU is is down at 46th in our power rankings, but you know I, I could certainly uh, talk myself into SMU being that opponent in the AAC championship game. So maybe there's something I'm missing, but this under six, or, or excuse me, this, this win total at six from DraftKings, Seems really low. So I, I absolutely would. Uh, this would be a bet for me, uh, SMU over the six. And, and if it's not already in our betting game, I think that's the one that, that I'm going to go for uh, this week. I'm, I'm going to uh, 250, 250 <laughs> of, of my fake dollars on SMU over six. Because, uh, yeah, just, I, I, I see maybe too many positive scenarios, but... I, I was really, really surprised to see six as the total for them. This seems like an eight and team to me. 
Xavier, you said you're not going to put any bets this time. And, and I, and I respect that you've, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you've done a decent amount already, but, uh, like Nick said, this, this SMU number is bettable. I don't know if I'm going to mess with it either, but it, it it's definitely bettable because on paper, this team looks pretty, pretty solid. They really do. And I know I said I was going to refrain from it. <laughs> but Nick, Set a limit. Set yeah, a limit. Don't, to talk don't about an all three agree here. This, this would, <laughs> this Nick, would Nick be made, a different type of all three agree. Yeah, it would be. Uh, Nick made it very difficult for me not to want to bet on, on, on SMU. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you know, when, when you look at them from top to bottom and across the – you know, I, I just love what they have. Yes, they finished the season last year, you know, kind of sloppily and obviously lost some games that they brought, weren't supposed to. But this was a team that, you know, were, was clicking on all cylinders before the injuries really slowed them down. Reggie Roberson is probably one of my favorite receivers to watch in college football. I don't know. You know, people, I, if you haven't given them much of a watch, go ahead and get He's electrifying. You know, he can go deep. He can play short. I, I, I love all – I love Reggie Roberson as a receiver. Um, and this year, the only thing I will say about SMU, and this is my only concern, is when we give this kind of hype to SMU, they don't live up to it. We did it uh, two years ago when they, you know, we, we do this every so often with SMU where all of it looks like it's going to click and it ends up not. It's the same thing I just said a second ago. SMU is one of those weird teams that when you give them expectation, they tend to kind of slip up. There's a game or two that they just don't come to play. They typically do play down to their opponents and it has, you know, and it, you know, it, it ruins them, and it ruins what well, it, it ends up being really good seasons. I mean, this there's a reason why this team, for some odd reason, always ends up like nine and three, or you know, eight and four. Even when we would all agree that, you know, they are one of the better teams, or have been one of the better teams in in the American Conference over the last couple of years, they have yet to put it all together and really, you know, run the table and compete for uh, an, an AAC title. And I'm not so sure if they're going to be able to do it again this year. When you look at their schedule, it just looks too like it looks it looks too good. It, and SMU for me is a team that's too good to be true until I see it. Um, you know, I, I'm going to say that they're gonna they're gonna go over. That's not a bad bet from Nick. But how good they're gonna be competing for a conference title, I don't know at this point. Um, I would be I, I'm just gonna be cautious with them. Uh, not overly cautious because, like I said, I think they go well over six. But I think this will be an eight and four, nine and three ball club uh, that we look at the end of the year and we go, they probably should have won that game. There's going to be a game on their schedule that they lose. That we go, how? This just is, and that's how SMU has been. Um, to Nick's credit, they were talking about he was talking about recruiting earlier. This past year was the highest national ranking that they've had it. I want to say ever. I kept clicking backwards, and I, at some point, I created way too many tabs. I was in like 2007, <laughs> and I was like, I I got to get back to the podcast. And I they haven't had a national ranking as high as 50. I'll save you some time. I think it's about the highest, uh, certainly in the highest in the internet area, uh, internet era, and probably the highest since the mid 80s when uh, when they were playing Very by a, a little Very little true. different set of rules. <laughs> Fun fact: my my I have an uncle who was on that team. Uh, oh, yeah. really? Yes, I did. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was one of the guys who also went pro. So, yeah. Uh, what's, but, he, what's he drive? <laughs> now? Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah, I would know. What did he drive then? That's what we're uh, going yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to keep that close to the vest. Um, 
<laughs> but um, no, I just you know they they've really capitalized on this and they've become a really good recruiter, finishing fifty first nationally um, and third in the AAC, um, which just speaks to exactly what Nick was talking about. They brought in a four star quarterback in Preston Stone, who I know many people at SMU are probably really excited about. Uh, he was their highest recruit this year. Uh, I just you know SMU is working in the right direction. I'm just waiting for them to put it all together. You know, they had a 10 and three season a couple of years ago, but we all thought once again, this was a team that could possibly win the conference and run the, and run the table and possibly go undefeated that year. And they had some losses in that year that I was just like, how? And for, and ever since then, it's put a bad taste in my mouth on whether or not they will be able to do so, even with all the chips, you know, or with all, with everything looking like it's, it's a poise for them to have a really, really good season. I'm still waiting for them to be able to do it uh, for a third year without having a loss in there where it's head scratching. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, uh, it's going to be an interesting year for for SMU. Uh, hopefully, they're playing under all the correct rules, you know, unlike ASU, who's letting people go right now. So after some investigations here, but let's go on over to uh, Temple. And Temple had an ugly year last year. I mean, that's the best way to say it. they didn't start the season until October 10th. They were hit hard by injuries and COVID stuff. They finished one and six under second year head coach Rod Carey. And it was just a rough year. We've got them at five and seven, though. Their DK win total is three because they look so bad. I'm favored to win in four. Talent edges in four, Nick. Uh, this looks, when we have them at five, their DK numbers at three, even though it's a, you know, uh, plug your nose while you swallow your medicine type of bet, it's still kind of an automatic bet, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, somewhat unfortunately. <laughs> Say it with less enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's funny. I and I, I talk about this on occasion, not as much here, but just uh, maybe some private conversations or whatever. I know I'm not great at, at marketing myself, but uh, or, or our stuff necessarily. One, we've had a uh, a lot of interest recently, and and some new Patreon supporters, some longtime supporters, were really really uh, appreciative. Uh, I I, however, I do definitely hedge i do uh you know i'm I'm not the oh this is the bed of the century of the week type thing um so when i see a number like this where we expect temple to maybe make a run at a bowl game my first thought is not oh this is an absolute lock you know it it's what did i miss what's wrong why are we so much higher on temple than everybody else and in some ways we are, uh, but in the other, you know, in other, other ways we're not necessarily because they're 103rd in our power rankings. And, and I thought, you know, in January, when I saw uh, starters entering the transfer portal, uh, they had starters entering the transfer portal last year, but when, you know, Anthony Russo, the quarterback, uh, when defensive players like Arnold uh, Ibikiti and, and Ifani, uh, Maje, both of those guys end up going to, or all three of those guys with Russo going to Power Five schools. Uh, Rockman Davis, who left in the middle of last season, ended up at a Power Five school at Vanderbilt as well. You know, you, you think of a guy like uh, Christian Braswell, starting corner, ended up in the transfer portal, landed at, at Rutgers. Other guys uh, went to Colorado State. They had a couple of, uh, you know, the uh, Pacozzi brothers, Vincent and Nick, left tackle starting left tackle and, and a reserve tight end ended up going to Colorado State. You see all that turnover. And and I was thinking, you know, in the early spring months, man, this might be, you know, 
uh, a team that ranks 125th or worst in our power rankings. And so I, I was a little surprised that they ended up uh, being a team that, you know, numbers are, they don't hate. <laughs> and uh, part of that is Temple decided, hey, this transfer portal works both ways. Guys can leave and we can bring guys in. And, and they brought in some talented players at some key spots. They completely remade their defensive line and their secondary. They are going to start, uh, the way we project at least, uh, two transfers on the defensive line with two others in the two deep. And we expect they're going to start three uh, first-year transfers. That includes uh, Quantel Reigns, who was a transfer on campus last year but didn't get a waiver to play. Uh, but we expect, you know, two and a half, three starters on, on both the defensive line and in the secondary to come from transfer portal. We expect, we already know that their starting quarterback, Dewan Mathis, is a transfer from uh, Georgia. He had won that job in spring practice. Looks like, you know, the running back position, at least two of the top three, and, and probably should go ahead and pencil in Iverson Clement from Florida as uh, the starter. However, I kind of wanted to do what I could to, to uh, knock our numbers down a little bit, quite honestly, with Temple. Uh, so I do still have him split with Ravon Bonner and uh, Trayvon Ruley, who are lower rated players. But, you know, they're going to have transfers there. Ahmad Anderson and Nazi Burnett are P5 transfers coming in. You expect to, to help uh, give some depth to the receiver position where Jaden Blue, who is prob probably one of the more underrated G5 receivers out there, a guy who's got a ton of targets, ton of catches in his career. Um, but he and Randall Jones, pretty good duo, but you add in those transfers, Anderson and Burnett. And, you know, it's, it's not the worst... Uh, receiving core in, in the conference by any stretch. I mean, they're, you know, not not great, but top eight in the conference and in double digits, 86th overall. So they went from being potentially horrible the way our numbers work with not only just a bad year, I mean, 113th in team performance overall last season, 109th on offense, 101st on defense. They were a bad team. And then to lose arguably, you know, a half, a dozen of their best players uh this could have been one of the worst teams in college football but i think they've rebounded and when i was talking about memphis i said yeah to get this team to uh, that eight win level they're going to have to hit on every single transfer and that really worries me well for temple it's kind of you know to be one of the worst teams in college football you have to miss on every single transfer I'm not as worried about that. I, I don't know that they're necessarily going to hit a home run with Dewan Mathis. I think he's got promise, but, you know, in a very limited uh, bit of playing time, it was rough last year at Georgia. I mean, he, he looked at, you know, like a fish out of water. Uh, I saw some, some, the PFF guide did a, 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 you know, gave me some numbers to work with on, on how to put it, but in 40 dropbacks last year with Georgia, he had seven turnover-worthy plays and was sacked five times. So, you know, taking too long with the football, not making great decisions. It's a very small sample size, but he obviously impressed the Temple coaches enough that he came in and won the job right away. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that they're going to necessarily 
hit a home run with him or with either of the running backs or, or even the defensive linemen or, or guys in the secondary. But I think that they've raised their floor considerably. I thought that this might be a team who could go 1-11 in January. But right now, yeah, five and a half seems high, but three wins, that that absolutely is in the realm of possibility, especially when you're considering they play Wagner, an FCS opponent. They're playing Akron. They're playing USF and Navy, who we've, we've already talked about that, that we – uh, are are pretty low on. So you might not win all four of those games, but you probably should win three. And so, it, you know, take into account they also play Rutgers. There are also other winnable games. East Carolina is, is in that mix. Um, so if Temple takes care of business, beats Wagner and Akron, and then splits the other winnable games, that over three is absolutely... Uh, you know, I mean, that, that yeah, auto bet, basically. Uh, there's not a huge room for error in our, our uh, three different models, but we do have them favored to win four officially. We have four talent edges and we have four stats only, uh, you know, favorites in our, in our prism uh, projection. So Temple is not a title contender, but they're a team that if everything clicked and, and the, they hit on some of these transfers, they could be, you know, they could make a run at a bowl. Five and a half wins seems high, but that schedule is manageable. So uh, I think four probably is is about right. I did go ahead and, and pencil them in at five and seven, as you mentioned, Scott, our official record predictions, just because that's what the numbers say. I probably would say four and eight and two wins in conference. But even that gets, you know, gets gets the job done. So uh, Temple, in short, not as bad as, as I feared. <laughs> yeah, and, and Xavier, I mean, it, it's tough. It's tough to make a bet on a team like this. You know what I mean? I mean, it's tough to take the under on a team like Navy, too, you know, just because the, the number set so low. low. It, no, I think Navy's easier, the easier bet to take. Uh, you know, I think okay. if you're looking at things objectively, it's e- it's always easier to go negative, isn't it? I mean, come on. But yeah. the um, Temple, like Nick said, really breaks it out to six winnable games here, maybe a couple more than that uh, for them. And, you know, Dewan Mathis didn't have a lot of success, but I think naming him the starter could have definitely been something just because they had so much inconsistency last season, not even starting their year until October was a big part. So maybe it's just, hey, look, we're going to name a starter so we have something consistent to go walk into the game one with after, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably a tumultuous offseason of having a lot of these spots up in the air. So they have something already guaranteed. I'm sure Mathis was a big part of that in, uh, you know, uh, convincing and in, in doing all the right stuff. But uh, this seems like a bettable number. What do you think about Temple? <sighs> Hmm. I kind of want to be pessimistic here. I I really do. I I think when you look at Temple's schedule for me, I think it's a little bit too, you know, I think three wins is ridiculous because of how little it is. So that's that's why the bet's so easy. But when I think about a team that – a possible bowl team, I don't think they're there yet, and their and their schedule I don't think is is weak enough for that yet. I don't I don't like their game against Rutgers. Uh, I don't like that game at all. First, I, I, that's so funny. 
Rutgers is, is, is for me, becoming a more formidable team. Uh, Rutgers, I, I think, will be better this year. Uh, so that first game of the season, I think they'll beat Akron. I think they'll beat Wagner. Uh, but then that second half of the year, USF, I think, is a win. But I think after that, and, you know, maybe Eastern Carolina, East Carolina, I think after that, you may, you're, you're looking at toss-ups, really. Uh, and I'm not too favorable outside of Navy. And I'm not really too favorable or, or too fond of just deciding that this team is going to be a bowl team because they have all of these amazing transfers that came in that have to work. I know Nick said it's almost impossible that that happens, but trust me, it's a lot easier than it sounds uh, for these guys to come in and not play up to the to the level in which we think that they, they can. Dewan Mathis is a guy who is a pure athlete. I mean, this is a guy who at Georgia has all of the physical tools, just has to be able to put it together, and it's really in between the years. You talked about him holding on to the ball too too often. Uh, I think he played a lot last year, understanding that he had a short leash and was really not playing, you know, as confidently as he probably could have. Um, he looked really rough against Arkansas, and then they put him again again um, in, in the Alabama game, and, and he just looked really just. You look like he just wasn't there, and so that really concerns me a little bit to whether or not you know his confidence is shaken and what you know what kind of player is Temple getting after a, a pretty bad year at, at, you know, at Georgia. And for the rest of the guys, I mean, their running back room is pretty much dominated by transfers uh, to an extent. You know, so we're expecting those guys to come in right away. I just think you're looking at way too many guys in their first year with a program to just hit the ground running. I think you're going to see some slip ups, hopefully for Temple's sake, it's not, maybe it's at, you know, it's on their defensive front. Maybe their defensive front, all the transfers they brought in don't hit the ground running. But there's too many key positions. You know, you're starting two corners, both being transfers. That concerns me. You're starting quarterback, possibly being a transfer. You're two starting running backs, possibly being. Like, that's just way too many guys to come in and have to hit the ground running for this team to be a possible uh, to make a bowl game. I'm not confident with that. I am confident with with them possibly with them winning over three games. But I am not confident with them making a bowl game this year with as many transfers as they brought in for them all to hit the ground running and all have this and play up to the ability that we all think that they have. That's just, that's just way too many ifs. And I know Nick is a big, big if guy. Nick is a big if guy. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, one, one last note on here. Timing is everything because I, I was looking at uh, past, you know, I was looking at my, my bankroll here in our, in our betting game. I was like, I, I know I bet in real life Temple over three pretty early on after after they were posted. But part of the reason in our FBS team profiles we we you know keep track of all the uh, win totals going on. We we update our projected spreads automatically and stuff because we want to get you know when when we want to act on that information. We want to do it quickly. Right now, Temple over three at DraftKings, which is what what we used when I was in New Hampshire where it's legal, uh, and we just decided to. To, to stay consistent using that as our reference, but uh, tipple over three was even money. So I bet 250 fake dollars and, and to win 250 fake dollars. Today I was looking at it and it's minus 120. So betting 250 would only win 200. So that's, that's why we are, are trying to uh, make sure we're early with all of our projections and, and keep a running uh, total where we can, because, you know, had, had we waited until doing our, our uh, deep dive here on, on the AAC, we might have missed uh, some value there, would have missed some value and, and potentially a, a payoff if we are able to get there. So, you know, get get numbers early and bet early. That's what that's essentially what, <laughs> what yeah. I think Nick was going to say at the end there. 
Yeah, yeah. Be better early. Get, get in on time. Absolutely. Uh, but let's go over to uh, Tulane. And they were six and six last year, three and five in the conference, but it could have been better. They lost a big lead versus Navy. Uh, they dropped overtime heartbreakers to SMU and Tulsa. We've got them at five and seven. Their number on DK is five and a half. Favored to win five, but only talent edges in three. So uh, this looks like the opposite, a very not bettable number, Nick. What do you think about uh, Tulane for 2021? It's going to be very difficult, I think, for Tulane. One, they play a really tough schedule. Uh, only Navy has a tougher schedule in the American. They rank 28th in our strength of schedule rankings. That's that's the biggest issue. They play Oklahoma and Ole Miss and two-time Conference USA defending uh, champion UAB. So in the non-conference, one and three is absolutely possible. Two and two seems like a best case scenario. And then you look at the conference uh, slate, they don't play USF. So just on schedule alone, it, it's you know going to be going to be difficult. Uh, they are only one of two teams in the conference that replace both coordinators. Willie Fritz is one of those you know head coaches who has had a track record of success. Has had uh, you know had. Tulane playing at a, a real uh, moving in a positive direction, basically during during his entire tenure. Um, you know, one of the things I've read in, in magazines and other online uh, pieces is is that you know the depth is there now. When he took over, uh, Willie Fritz was able to to get more out of a lesser roster, but he's done a really good job of of you know getting some transfers, getting some JUCO guys, recruiting the occasional high school underrated player like quarterback Michael Pratt came in started as a true freshman last year so you know he's raised the talent level opposing coaches are noticing that noticing that the depth is in a better place uh but it, it's a, going to be a bit of an uphill battle because the schedule is very tough um I do like Pratt I mean he was able to come in start nine games, took over in, in week two, uh, and was a dual threat guy, ran for eight touchdowns through for 20 touchdowns. He did also toss eight interceptions. Uh, so we'll have to cut down a little bit on that, but you would expect a true sophomore with a year of experience under his belt is going to get a little bit better at, at reading, uh, opposing defenses, not forcing throws, things like that. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the quarterback position at Tulane think you know Pratt has a chance to be really really good uh at worst he, he should continue to be uh very solid so you know they lost a couple of talented running backs Stefan Henderson uh, Hutterson was their leading rusher last year he has transferred to McNeese State uh they also lost Mari Jones who is one of my personal favorites just a kind of guy who can do everything but for some reason didn't get the ball very much toward the end of, of his career at Tulane and then the transfer portals off to Georgia Southern. But Ty J. Spears, you know, could be at least early last year, looked like one of the best G5 running backs, you know, that, that anybody's got. And Cameron Carroll, 230 pounds, short yardage goal line monster, 12 touchdowns last year, but still ran for uh, over six yards per carry. So he and Spears, who tore his ACL but is healthy now, uh, should be a great one-two punch. And then they added Devin Brumfield, transfer from Utah. So 
Uh, he's going to be in the mix. Uh, Gino Booker is a guy that has been uh, solid as a reserve running back, but he's going to get some touches as a receiver as well. And they've recruit, you know, the recruiting is on the rise. Iverson Kelstein is, is uh, the other than Brumfield, who's a P5 transfer, the highest rated, you know, of those top five in our depth chart. So they're solid there. Running, or, uh, excuse me, receiver should be a strength. Jaquan Jackson, uh, very good. Tyreek James at tight end should be uh, solid. Shea Wyatt is a very interesting incoming transfer, a guy who's moving up in competition. He was at Division II Central Missouri, uh, but a guy who had a huge you know, start to his career there, was an All-American type guy, and you expect he's going to come in and fit with Jackson and, and the JUCO guys coming in last year, Deuce Watts and Pat Watts, Deuce being the, uh, the more productive of the two last season. Everybody needs to cut down on drops. Tulane consistently last season was was among the national leaders in drops, but uh, they're talented. They they have guys who can make plays, and they're getting better uh, by by bringing a couple of transfers in there as well. The offensive line should be solid, if not spectacular. Uh, four out of five starters return unit that you know graded out decently well, sixty third in our O line performance ratings last year, but. This was an offense that, though it only ranked 61st in team performance, you know, statistically had a lot to like. And I think looking ahead to 2021 could be very, very dangerous, especially if Pratt makes that next step. Defensively, linebacker is by far the strength. Uh, They are a top 50 unit at linebacker. I mean, I said by far, I I think my eyes, it's it's not necessarily close, uh, but According to our talent numbers, you know, they're top 60 at, at all three levels, or excuse me, they're top 75 at all three levels with uh, 55 in our D-line talent rankings, 75 at defensive back. But in the front seven, we have it ranked 50th, and in the back seven, we have it ranked 59th. So solid, you know, not not necessarily a major, major weak spot, especially if some of the transfers come through in the secondary we have penciled in. Uh, Lance Robinson, who's a transfer from Kansas State as a uh, starting corner, and then Darian Rakestraw, who was a starter at Colorado at safety, we expect to be, uh, you know, one of those top five. We always list one extra uh, defensive back as a starter. We always list 12 starters in our defensive projections just because so many um, defenses are are playing, you know, nickel and dime packages more. if not as a base, but, you know, more often than not, it seems. So, you know, not not the very best defense. They were victimized at times through the air. They ranked 118th against the pass in our defensive team performance. But with a, a decent rush defense, uh, it was close to a top 50 unit. The only problem is, you know, they lost two defensive line or, or at least edge uh, players uh, were drafted. Uh, Cameron Sample was taken in the fourth round. Patrick Johnson uh, was seventh rounder. Both of those guys were 100 rated players, and that's going to be uh, that's going to be a spot that that they're going to have to pay attention to. They were able to land a 100 rated player as a transfer in Joseph Dorcias from Memphis. So you know, not only take a, a maximum rated player, but also take it from a conference rival, that's that's certainly something to be happy about. But with that schedule, there are very few sure things. 
Uh, we do have Tulane, you know, of course, is a, a almost a 30-point favorite against Morgan State. We do have them as a double-digit favorite uh, against USF. But everywhere else, they're going to have to fight and scratch and claw. And they've done a good job of doing that well enough to get the bowl games in years past. But this year, I just wonder, I wonder if it's going to be too difficult a task schedule-wise for, for them to get there. I'm, I'm, you know, six, uh, excuse me, five and a half as that number is not unattainable. Tulane absolutely could get back to a bowl game, could get back to six wins, but, but adding everything up and, and just sort of looking at where our numbers are, unless Pratt moves from a 78 rated player to somebody like in the nineties or, or at least upper eighties, which is possible. I mean, he could run for a hundred yards here and there. He could, you know, put a, a 300 yard game. He could be conference player of the week. He can add production points through the course of the year and become like an 85 type guy. But unless he makes a big jump like that, I think Tulane is probably destined for five wins or fewer. And our stats only model agrees. Our talent is definitely agree. I mean, three three talent edges is third worst in the conference, the way we total things up. It's fewer than USF has. So you mix that in with a just, you know, really, really tough schedule. It's hard for me to get to six wins with Tulane. Yeah, and uh, I don't know what you're thinking here, Xavier, but looking at this schedule, it seems like there's five losses guaranteed and maybe two wins you know yeah. you've got you're gonna beat uh usf and uh fcs morgan state uh but the losses are oklahoma ole miss um uh cincy, the, uh, cincy ucf uh and um so so you're you're gonna win you're gonna lose all those games and uh but there's some toss-ups here they're not favored in these games but anything just projected winning percentage for me i like to kind of say anything that's within 10 percent is maybe coin flippy uh uab um they're just over they're just over for east carolina too they're just under for houston uh and then uh tulsa and memphis i mean that is where their season is going to be made uh, but they're kind of broken up within the year too. So it's not like you can, you know, maybe if you hit this, you know, UAB, East Carolina, Houston stack, you win all three of those, then now you're cooking with gas, but that's a big if, and they're only favored in one of those games. So uh, this is just a really hard number to bet, I think. Yeah, I couldn't do it. You know, I was sitting there as Nick was talking, trying to work a way for Tulane to make it to a bowl game. I just don't see how it happens, you know, and it's not only because of the difficulties of their schedule. They had a difficult schedule last year to start off. They started off two and four last year, ran the table, and they were able to get, you know, they were able to get to a bowl game last year. You know, you know, they started off with UCF, uh, Houston, and a ranked SMU team last year, as well as Southern uh, last year, uh, and struggled to start off, right? But then last year's schedule, they got then Temple, ECU, Army, Tulsa, and Memphis to end the year. And so it, it lightened up. You know, Nick alluded to it. This schedule, and you just said, this schedule does not lighten up whatsoever. You know, you you get done with Oklahoma, Ole Miss, and UAB to start the year off. You get East Carolina and a scrappy Houston team with a Dana Hogerson, who we just talked about, needs to have a good year to save his job, probably. Uh, then you get a bye week, and, and you know, you're, you're, you know, 
your present after the bye week is at SMU, who we talked about might be a sleeper for a conference title appearance. Cincinnati, who we think might have an opportunity to sneak into the CFB playoff, and UCF at UCF, um, who we all think is, is you know at least the second most talented, if not the most talented team in, in all all uh, the American Conference. So it's like I don't see where they're able to maybe string together some wins, build up that confidence by their bye week. This is you know this is by their bye week probably at best. You know, you're thinking a three and you know you're thinking a two and three, three and two ball club at the bye week, and after that, then I mean, if they're able to do that, which means they would have to beat either UAB, you know, they'd have to beat UAB or they would have to uh, beat a Houston team that we just talked about at home. Both of those games are at home for them. They would have to be able to handle that. I think it's just really difficult at the end of the year to put together three straight wins against Tulsa, USF, and at Memphis, where when you're looking at it, that's coming probably off the back of three straight losses. And on top of that, the last game is at Memphis with a team where we think may be competing for their own bowl game. And so that game is not going to be a, a meaningless contest. Uh, Tulsa's never a team that quits, so that's not going to be a meaningless contest. And, you know, I just don't see how Tulane's able to put it all together uh, to, to get them to that, you know, to a bowl game and get over the five and a half that is slated for them. I, I don't see it. Uh, and I'm not willing to bet on it either. I would be more, much more comfortable betting the under for them. On the recruiting trail, they had a down year. They went from 69th nationally in 2020 to 81st in 2021. Now, granted, they did only bring in, you know, uh, they brought in five transfers. Once again, like we talked about, transfers don't go into the recruiting number. Uh, but, you know, this is a team that is in a trans, is in a recruit uh, rich state, being in Louisiana. And, you know, funny enough, with, with Tulane, them being a private school, they kind of do recruit all over the country. You know, when, when you look at their state-by-state breakdown, Louisiana is number one, but they only had three kids signed from Louisiana. So you're looking at a team that recruits everywhere, and that's been a strength of theirs in the past. It's why they had the 69th uh, ranked uh, class last year. It's why they finished third in the AAC last year. It's why they're slated right now to finish fourth in the AAC uh, in 2022. So recruiting wise, they're a, a pretty you know underrated recruiting team with maybe you know not those, uh, not the on-field success that you would expect from a team that finishes in the middle every year or in the top, excuse me, the top half of the conference every year uh, when it comes to the recruiting. But I think, you know, the it, it's looking up for Tulane. They just got one hell of a schedule this year. And that's really, I think, their biggest concern here. I think maybe in the, you know, next year's schedule looks a lot better for them. They're not, you know, currently, just to, just to do it a little bit, currently they're not conference scheduled next year. UMass, Alcorn State, Kansas State, Southern Miss. <laughs> a lot a bit easier than what you have currently in 2021. I think that's why we think that five and a half is just a little bit too rich for our blood with already, you know, getting the UCFs and the Cincinnati's. You're also getting an Ole Miss and an Oklahoma start to your off. That's just too much for me uh, to choose uh, Tulane to go over. So I'm going to take the under. All right, let's bump over to Tulsa here. And uh, they, they did start slow on offense, but they got to a six and one start uh, and made the AAC title game. They lost to Cincinnati and then lost their bowl game to Mississippi State to go six and three. Uh, six and a half is their number here, Nick. Uh, six and six is their projected record. We have them favored to win six, but only talent edges in two. But as Xavier said, you know, Tulsa is a team that never quit. Obviously, they came back and beat Tulane. They're in a couple overtime games last year. I just remember that pimp hat that they had getting traded off uh, among defenders. That, that was a lot of fun to watch. But uh, what do you think about Tulsa going into 2021 here? Tulsa absolutely was a, a 
in some ways a surprise and, and, and in some ways perhaps fortunate, but yeah, I think, I think the ways I put it with being uh, a team that didn't give up is, is absolutely right because it was, it was very strange watching uh, games throughout the course of the year and seeing that, you know, quarterback Zach Smith, who has moved on uh, just was bad in like the first quarter, the first half uh, inaccurate, just not, you know, look, it took him forever. It seemed to get in rhythm and the offense struggled as a result early in, in games, but they were able to get better over the course of the game. They were able to keep it, you know, if they fell behind, they were able to keep it close enough to, uh, be able to come back. They got some questionable calls in, in some certain games, the East Carolina one being a, a very specific, uh, example where they probably should have lost that game, uh, at least statistically, they had a 20% chance, uh, according to post-game expectancy. Uh, but, you know, that, that if, if we're being honest with ourselves, probably should have been a two-lane loss, or, or excuse me, a Tulsa loss. Uh, but they were able to, to do what they needed to do to get to the AAC championship game and, and gave Cincinnati uh, a tough you know, a, a tough game. They were only 9% to win that in post-game win expectancy, but it was a 27-24 loss and, and then uh, had a chance to beat an SEC opponent in the bowl uh, before, you know, losing that one, a, a game that statistically they would have won 77% of the time. So uh, it was it was a very kind of odd year for Tulsa. Our numbers were pretty low on them this time last year. I think they were triple digits. I think they were out in that temple spot, 103, uh, when when we were looking ahead. We did not see a conference championship contending team. Um, but they were, you know, they, they were certainly a team with promise. And this year, it's, it's you know, we, we have higher expectations based on last year because they were 36th overall in team performance. They were 10th defensively uh, in team performance, ninth against the pass, 27th against the run, uh, but they have to replace some key players. Maybe, you know, fewer than Cincinnati. Uh, when we first started talking, we talked about seven guys uh, on the Cincinnati roster who were uh, in NFL camps. Tulsa, you know, only one, Zayvon Collins, who was all everything at, at linebacker and a first-round pick, uh, by the Arizona Cardinals. But even though Zach Smith was shaky at best early on, he's going to be a big loss. They lost their leading rusher in Corey Taylor. They lost uh, another guy who was in the mix and TK Wilkerson to a medical retirement. So, you know, that that's a little bit concerning. Davis Brin at quarterback, the projected starter, likely starter, uh, did save them in a game, came back and, and was able to... Uh, uh, be the architect of, of one of those come from behind victories. Shamari Brooks is about 1,200 yards, a little more than 1,200 yards from being the all-time uh, leader in rushing yards in school history, but he missed all of last season and then also spring practice recovering from an ACL. So uh, is he going to be back to his you know 2019 and before level of play? If not, you know, Daenerys Prince and Anthony Watkins, you would expect, would, would be in the mix to get a lot of carries. They did get a transfer as well. Steven Anderson, who didn't play last year, but had been uh, has some starting experience at Southern Miss. But 
they're good at receiver. They're good on the offensive line. Experience, very experienced in both spots. Multiple all-conference caliber, caliber players in both spots. So uh, you expect they're going to be okay. Hear good things about Bryn. He's not super highly rated, according to our numbers, only a 77. But he's certainly you know, somebody who's got growth potential. And Tulsa, as a result, if the offense is able to play you know, uh, at a similar level, they were 71st offensively in team performance last year, he's got a shot to be a low 80s type guy by the end of the season, probably has a chance to, to make Tulsa into a top 60, top 50 type team potentially based on how other players, you know, uh, perform as a result. But defensively, I expect, even though they lost Collins, and they also, just as important, maybe even more importantly, uh, lost their two starting and, and really, really good corners, Caleb Evans and Allie Green, both to Missouri. Followed a, a former uh, coach there who, who moved from Tulsa to Missouri as, as the uh, defensive backs coach. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as concerned because I think front seven wise, Jackson Player is one of the most versatile defensive linemen, certainly in the conference. He played every defensive line position for them last year uh, as a guy at, you know, 285 plus close, maybe closer to 300, but can move, can play edge, can play, uh, you know, defensive end, can, can play a three technique or nose guard, whatever wherever he's needed, he can play. And and I think uh, Tulsa was probably, you know, pretty, pretty fortunate to get him back. Probably uh, could have been drafted this year. But then Justin Wright, similar to, to player, was a all-conference performer. They did bring in, you know, some transfers to uh, maybe help soften the blow uh, of – that personnel loss at linebacker and corner. John Michael Terry was a four-star guy or a chance to start at one of the linebacker spots. And, and then Kenny Solomon uh, was transferred from Tennessee, has a chance to start at one of those corner spots or, or at least play a very uh, pivotal role as, as some, you know, deep uh, depth type guy. So Tulsa is a team that overachieved our expectations, was fortunate in some spots last year and has some key pieces missing. So I'm not surprised that even though we, we respect Tulsa, our numbers respect Tulsa more than they did this time last year, I'm not surprised that we're actually lower on them than most. And, and our uh, official uh, projection and only six wins, our prism favorites, uh, our stats only model only has six. The talent edges at two was a surprise, but seeing all three of those being below the six and a half, I, I believe Tulsa is probably – uh, going to regress just a little bit. And I do think that maybe, you know, we, we missed on them last year, certainly. But we didn't miss bad enough for me to think that, oh, you know, something's totally wrong because Tulsa got, for, you know, had a couple of fortunate wins there. So uh, I, I think they do come back a little bit. 67 seems about right, but 6-6, six and six, I think, uh, is certainly, you know, where I am, am comfortable. I think that they are a bowl contending team. I don't see back-to-back AAC championship games, uh, and I don't necessarily see, you know, eight wins either. I, I think this is a team that is good, not great, 
fairly difficult schedule, especially in the non-conference. Um, but uh, a, a team that, you know, maybe luck evens out a little bit this year and they come up short, five wins wouldn't shock me. But uh, I think six, uh, six seems about right. Certainly not their ceiling, but I, I think under the six and a half, though I haven't bet it and, and not sure I will here, um, you know, that, that, that seems legit to me. Tulsa, I think, is, is uh, coming, coming back a little bit compared to what we saw last season. And Xavier, looking at the schedule, looks like, to me, it looks like there's six wins, uh, there's four losses, and then two toss-ups. And those being uh, Houston, which they get to play uh, at home October 1st. It's a Friday game. And then the other one being uh, uh, Tulane, which is an away game. Uh, and that one is November 13th. I think you could probably lock them in to six and four outside of that. So it's really, it's getting a win in one of those games and they're not, they're not down a ton, uh, but, but uh, the lines aren't huge, but they are not favored in either one of those games. So it's just because I feel like we're guaranteed six and four. I, it's hard to say, it's hard to bet this number, uh, to go over. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, 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 I thought you were going to say under. Uh, but no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's a little bit difficult to, to do so. And, and I can't agree more with Nick. You know, going into this year with Tulsa, one of my biggest concerns was, will they be able to replicate what they did last season? You know, to get – to, to play as hard as you did last season and, and to be as resilient as you were, to have that many uh, – what was it, four games where they were losing in the fourth quarter – and came back and won, I think, all four of them, it, it is something that doesn't happen year in and year out. Um, now, granted, it does give you a sense of confidence that you may be able to carry into the next season, understanding that you're never out of it. Uh, but to do that and execute that, you know, execute like that and be able to get the amount of stops going into, you know, every game when you really need them genuinely, you actually need them. Um, you know, and they were actually, you know, let's be honest, they, they were – uh, maybe, you know, uh, a touchdown away from beating uh, Oklahoma State at the beginning of the year. You know, in that game, Oklahoma State was awful. And, and Tulsa played, you know, as good as they possibly could defensively, just couldn't put uh, enough points on the board to get the job done. And going into this year, you know, they see Oklahoma State again. Uh, so that'll be something that I'm looking towards. Maybe Oklahoma State obviously is not going to take them more lightly. Maybe they did last year a little bit. Um, Tulsa's not going to be taken lightly whatsoever going into that game. So that's going to be a loss for me. Ohio State, obviously, they they do start with UC Davis, and I think they'll beat Arkansas State. Uh, they just got to win their toss-ups. That's really where it comes into play. Luckily for them, their toss-ups are at home, and I, I really like that. Houston's at home. Memphis is at home. Navy, which is, I, don't, I think is less of a toss-up, is at home. Uh, Temple is at home. And, yeah, you get, you, you know – Cincinnati on the road, uh, Tulane on the road, SMU. Outside of really Cincinnati and SMU that I, I think are more closer to guaranteed losses, you know, going to Tulane on the road, I don't think will be too much of a hassle for them. And obviously we're going to talk about in a second how bad we think UCF might be this year. Going to UCF is not that bad. So they really benefit or will benefit from a home, from being at home and, and allowing themselves, you know, to have those, those toss-up games to be in front of their home crowd, which may just be the boost that they need uh, that bolsters them to the, exactly what you're saying, Scott, to getting to that seven win, to possibly get, you know, to being that bowl team that we think is a guarantee right now. Uh, and I couldn't agree more with you on that. Uh, on the on the recruiting trail, they really didn't do anything. 
Tulsa was one of those teams last year that kind of refrained from recruiting during the COVID cycle. They only brought in 11 kids total at a high school, finished with the 127th ranked class, and I think that was why. Uh, they finished 11th in the AAC in recruiting this past year. Uh, they bring in you know, the six transfers that Nick talked about. I just, you know, recruiting-wise, Tulsa just is in a weird situation where they're like the sixth team in Texas. and Or, excuse me, not in Texas. Uh, but in, in Oklahoma and in that region. So they really struggle to to maximize their ability to recruit when you've got so many teams in the surrounding areas that are as good and as much of a household name as they are. Tulsa really struggles in that field. We just, I just talked about how SMU was able to pick from the, the Oklahoma and the, and the Texas and the A&M kind of fodder that doesn't go into those schools, but you're still contending with Texas Tech. And as we talked about in earlier podcasts, we talked, you know, teams like UTSA are getting better on the recruiting trail. And so really Tulsa's having to pick it up in that mid range and in that Midwest range where they're really losing out on some top tier talent to obviously some bigger schools, but also schools around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, uh, Tulsa's a, a weird looking team this year. Cause it, it's almost like you can write out the whole schedule right now, which of course you can't, uh, you know, uh, injuries happen, uh, you know, COVID protocols are still going to be in play uh, this year. Not as heavily as last year, obviously, but they're still going to be around. So uh, there's still going to be some weirdness to this year, but uh, they looked as locked in as, as you can, just as far as slotting in wins and losses. But let's go over to uh, UCF, who we have ranked 24. Uh, BYU beat them 49 to 23 to end Josh Heupel's era and cap a six four six and four season five and three in the conference, but they were within a touchdown in each of their other three losses besides that loss to BYU. So this is still a very very good team. DK has got them at nine and a half wins. We've got them better than that. Ten and two, uh, eleven uh, favored to win in ten with talent edges and uh, Malzahn coming over. Nick, it's gonna. A lot of people don't have a lot of faith in him and UCF, but um, I think this team is still going to be really good. So what do we think about UCF going into 2021? I think UCF, and we had a question last week about, uh, you know, what, what offense do you struggle to, you know, pinpoint as to, to what they're going to look like. I think UCF might fit that for the entire country. I think that, um, they are the most difficult team to project offensively that we've got. And it's partly because, uh, you know, under Josh Heupel, they were the fastest moving offense in the country last year. Uh, they, they've consistently been, you know, uh, playing at a, a, a really, really fast pace, and they attacked down the field with Dylan Gabriel and had a lot of success. He's one of the – I mean, if you read the UCF – portion of the the pff uh college football preview i mean they just absolutely rave about his uh, ability to throw the deep ball and connect and and not you know no uh, or very few turnover worthy plays uh attacking down the field usually you think if somebody is is going to put up really high numbers and average depth of the target and and you know the percentage of their throws that go 20 yards or more and things like that that are putting the ball in harm's way more often than you would be in, in shorter, uh, shorter routes and, and, you know, easier throws, but he's done a great job of connecting on those plays and, and turning into big, uh, you know, big gains and touchdowns for UCF. 
and that's just not what we've seen from Gus Malzahn offenses recently. Uh, Malzahn, when he was coming up, you know, after he moved up, up from high school uh, at Arkansas and then later um, at Tulsa, was a, probably my favorite era of Gus Malzahn, you know, calling offense, other than that 2010 Auburn team, of course. But uh, at Tulsa, they were a pass first offense, or at least uh, a, a, a dangerous passing offense among the national leaders throwing the football. And in uh, 20, what, what was it, 2007, uh, they had a 5,000 yard passer, 1,000 yard rusher, and then three 1,000 yard receivers, something that had never been done before. UCF, at least on paper, is built to do that sort of thing. The only problem is we haven't seen that from a Gus Malzahn offense in over a decade. We've seen a team that's really slowed down its offensive pace. We've seen a team that you know, really is a, a run first, run second type uh, offense. And yeah, they, they take some shots here and there, but uh, just just haven't, you know, had a quarterback like Dylan Gabriel one in, in a little while, uh, but two, you know, just hasn't really been the type of offense to to uh, take the lid off of the defense consistently. So it's going to be very interesting for me to see. I, I mentioned, you know, in some of our previous podcasts right after uh, Malzahn was hired, he seems pissed off. He seems, you know, uh, he didn't uh, didn't think he should have gotten fired at Auburn. Now he wants to prove people wrong. And he's going to be coaching with his hair on fire, basically. So if that's the case, and with Gus Malzahn, who at one time in his career, and for a good chunk of it, uh, was considered among the best offensive minds in college football, very creative in a lot of the things that he's done. I wonder if, you know, that sort of attitude that it seemed like he was coming in with UCF, maybe he's going to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I at Auburn I was doing this thing, but... I can adapt. I'm going to open it up a little bit. I've got maybe just one year with Dylan Gabriel and, you know, some uh, impressive receivers like Jalen Robinson, Ryan O'Keefe, who did some good things, a few transfers come in. Maybe maybe I'm going to open it up. Maybe we're going to let Gabriel uh, see what he can do and, and go back to, you know, high school roots when I was uh, throwing the ball all over the place and, and doing the hurry up, no huddle. And it's infancy and, and those Tulsa years, maybe that's what we're going to see out of UCF. The problem is the way we sort of calculate things and, and our statistical projections, I only use a five-year window. I, you know, I, I, I think that it's better to err on the side of what have you shown me most recently. And at Auburn, you know, that that's just not what they did. Uh, UCF over the last five years has averaged 3,600 passing yards per season. Uh, last year it was 3,500 in just 10 games. They were over 4,000 both in 2017, the last year under Scott Frost, and, and 2019, the last year of Josh Heupel. And at Auburn, you look at the passing yards the last few years, they've only once gone over 3,000 yards. They had 3,158 over 14 games in 2017. They've averaged 208. Uh, just over 200, just under 209 uh, over that five-year period passing yards per game, whereas UCF is almost 100 yards more. So it's it's a, a 
change in philosophy from what they've done under the previous regime. It's a, it's a change really under the previous two, unless Malzahn changes himself. So that's, that's my first question. And I think the biggest question, because otherwise, one, Malzahn has a track record of improving teams in his first year, or at least of playing at a really high level. His first year at, at Arkansas State, they won 10 games. I believe they won the Sun Belt that year. And then next year gets the job at Auburn, one of the biggest turnarounds we've ever seen from a losing season to national runner-up, BCS championship game, uh, contending Auburn. So, you know, can he come in in year one and, and jumpstart what might have been a, a team potentially starting to head in the wrong direction, losing four games, losing uh, of the eight losses they've had in, in two years under Heupel, seven of them were by one score. Is that Heupel's fault? Were they unlucky? I know. But, you know, Malzahn, maybe he's able to get that little bit extra out, at least in year one when he's got uh, a, a potential star at quarterback and, and a pretty talented offense overall. And then, you know, defensively, they certainly have questions. They were 72nd overall in, in our defensive team performance, 123rd against the pass. And then you take into account that they had three defensive backs drafted that they have to replace. Uh, that That's a little bit of a concern. They have hit the transfer portal pretty hard. They have recruited pretty well uh, in you know the last two coaching staffs. And it seems like Malzahn might be able to take them to another level. But they've got some things to figure out on offense. But the talent is there. This is a team that is right on the cusp of the top 25 in our roster strength ratings overall. The 12th most talented offense in the country, according to our numbers. And we're pretty high on Malzahn. And we do our head coach ratings and rankings based on uh, coach-specific team performance and coach Malzahn, Gus Malzahn, based on that has the 12th highest head coaching rating in our, you know, right now in college football, that might seem a little bit high, but he is consistently, you know, posted team performance ratings in the nineties among the top 15 in the country. So uh, I, I, I think they might've made a, a, an upgrade actually in, in getting Malzahn over Heupel. We'll see how it all plays out. But I'm I'm hopeful that we'll see something a little bit closer to that Tulsa offense. And if that's the case, I think they put UCF in the best position, maybe to challenge Cincinnati. I said at the very beginning of this, two and a half hours ago, that Cincinnati is not a guarantee to run through uh, the American undefeated. I think if anybody can beat them, it's UCF. And, and I think attacking Cincinnati down the field in a way that we haven't necessarily seen a Gus Malzahn offense do consistently in recent years. Uh, that that might be, you know, what it's going to take. They'll have an opportunity in October. They might have another opportunity for a rematch in December in the conference championship game, since there are no divisions anymore in, in the league. Uh, but talent-wise, UCF is the, the team, I think. Maybe SMU, maybe Houston, but we've seen it more recently with UCF that they actually have the talent to compete with Cincinnati week in and week out. So I, I think that there is a chance. Uh, you know, I, I still would favor, would would expect Cincinnati to be favored in both of those games. Right now we've got it Cincinnati favored by uh, 
on uh, Cincinnati, you know, that game being in Cincinnati. But right now, that's the only the only uh, game in which UCF is an underdog in their schedule. And I don't think Cincinnati is unbeatable for, for UCF. So they're a top 25 team in our power rankings. They're going to have to, uh, you know, improve some things, especially defensively against the pass. But I, I think this UCF team is very good and a legitimate conference title contending team. Yeah, Xavier, I mean, they definitely look legit. And, and specifically, like Nick just said, looking at the schedule, Cincinnati, the only game they're not favored in. And if you're just looking for a coin flip game, they don't have them. They they do have games that are losable here, I would say. I, I wouldn't be completely shocked if they lost to Boise State, uh, but they're home for that game. They're away against Louisville on a Friday night. That one's tough. That's uh, September 17th, so that one's early as well. And then SMU uh, is the only other game that we see as a, you know, maybe a possibility. And I said coin flips are 10%. They're 11%. You know, they're uh, about a five-point favorite in that game. So uh, those are the only games that are maybe in questionable. All the rest of them kind of look very winnable for UCF. So the schedule is definitely in their favor. I think Malzahn, when he was at Auburn, I have a theory about this. I think the last two to three years, he's just been trying to keep his head above water. And I, so I think he's kind of tailored the offense to win in the SEC. He became more run heavy. He decided, you know what? I'm not going to focus on trying to make my offense uber explosive because that doesn't win ball games. I'm going to control possession. I'm going to run the football. And when we have to pass, we will. But I'm not going to be a team that goes four wide, you know, and, and tries to put up 45 points. When I've got to see LSU and, and, and Alabama to, you know, uh, every year. So I and so I think that he realized he found a formula that worked in the SEC uh, with the talent that he had. And obviously, once he lost some of that talent, it went away. And so and the wins went away with them. But that's where I think why Malzahn got so bogged down when I was at Auburn and why the offense stopped being so explosive when he was there. Because I do think that he found a formula of winning that was a little bit more boring. But it put W's on the board. And so I think that's what he did. I think at UCF, he's going to have a brand new leash, a brand new lease on life. And I expect their offense to become, or I expect their offense to stay as explosive. Maybe not to the same extent, but I don't expect there to be some super substantial drop off either uh, from their passing offense. I think he's going to love Dylan Gabriel as his quarterback. He's going to use that to his advantage, especially first year. So I don't see that their passing offense being taking too much of a hit under Malzahn in year one. Defensively, the, the only thing that really concerns me when I look at them defensively is the fact that they'll be leaning on two sophomore corners um, and, and a rather young uh, – and what is a rather young uh, secondary group uh, going into next year outside of the safeties. The safeties have a lot of experience, but they're, you know, they're, they're three corners. I have very limited experience, and that kind of concerns me a little bit uh, with the – with how big every game will be for UCF next year. We just talked, you know, Nick, you talked about them possibly contending for, you know, an AAC title for them to do that. They're going to have to, you know, win almost every game. It it is, um, if not every game on their schedule outside, probably, you know, obviously Boise State and Louisville, you know, but, you know, so I think UCF has the ability to run the table. Yes. I'm not so sure that they'll do it under year one. Uh, I will be honest with you. If they don't do it under year one with Dylan Gabriel, you know, probably leaving for the draft in year two will probably be just a, a little bit more of a question mark uh, for me. But I don't see, you know, why they can't win at least nine games. Nine and a half for me, 
is that too rich? You look at their schedule. You know, you said Louisville, Scott, but I'm not so sure that Louisville is actually going to be a game that they lose. I expect Louisville to be a better team this year, but I'm not sure. Um, well, they're favored by a decent margin in all those games. It's just yeah. every other game, they're favored by way more than way that. More than Double that. digits, yeah, for mm-hmm. uh, pretty much everything else except Boise State. They're seven and a half. Uh, Louisville's around five and a half, and then SMU is just under five. Every single other game, uh, you know, they're favored by double digits. So uh, th- those are the only possibilities to find those losses. That's it. And it's so funny to me that the games in which they are favored by so little, all except for one of them, are on the road. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, exp- you know, Gus Malzahn was honoring his time in Auburn. Auburn was a very, very good home team. Very, very good home team. Going into Jordan Hare was awful to do. Uh, but away games, they they struggled. And, and I wonder if he'll carry that kind of, you know, that that with him when he goes to UCF. I think UCF is a nine-win ball club. I'm not confident enough in them and in Malzahn to say that they'll go 10 wins plus, uh, which would be the over here uh, as they are slated at nine and a half. So I'll go under. Under really genuinely just means nine. I think they win. I think they win nine, lose three. I think they'll lose to Boise State. I think they'll lose to Cincinnati. And, and yeah, they, they whether it's Louisville or, or SMU, they're going to lose one of those games, in my opinion, too. Uh, but what I mean that, that that's a, a pretty good first year for for Malzahn, especially if he's able to do it with you know expansive football and it's not this you know the the more bogged down running style that he started to you know started to do at Auburn. All right, let's go over to the last team here. It's uh, the lowest ranked team in the AAC that we have in USF at 117. Jeff Scott won his first game there last season, but then lost eight in a row to close out. They did have some close games. They lost by two to Temple, one to Memphis, uh, 58 to 46, which is you know close for them against UCF. Their DK number is three and a half. We only have them at three. Favored to win one. That's against an FCS opponent. Uh, four Town edges in four, but, uh, I mean, we're starting from the bottom to rebuild South Florida right now, Nick. So it's going to be – it seems like it might be an, an extensive uh, rebuild here, and 2021 doesn't look to be very favorable for them. You missed the opportunity to say uh, last and, in this case, least – uh, USF at 117. <laughs> I'll leave the dad puns to dads, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. But uh, yeah, I mean, USF last year it was it was a struggle, and we uh, we expected it. You know, there there certainly has been talent on the roster. Xavier likes to remind me often that that two years ago. USF was uh, a team that I was so excited. Uh, it's you know it seems like the 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 older I get and the more I learn, the more I realize I I know less and less. Uh, and I learned I learned about USF. You know they they there was a reason why all those transfers left their previous schools. Uh, there's a reason that that you know maybe uh, we were overemphasizing our. Uh, experience ratings. We were, uh, you know, not looking as, as closely as we should have at, at some of those transfers and things like that. So learned a lesson because I thought, hey, man, this USF team uh, looks great. I mean, we we thought, or you know, the projections thought that uh, had a chance to to win ten games, compete for the uh, AAC. I, I think we even had them favored over Wisconsin in that week one game. I'm starting to sound like our buddy Phil yes. Steele now talking mm-hmm. about something two years ago in depth, but 
uh, it, it, I, I remember it and it was a lesson learned and rest assured everybody out there. If this is your first time, uh, with us, you know, we, we do learn from mistakes. So we, we were, uh, taught a lesson by USF. And so now I pay a little bit more attention to them maybe than it, at least at this point they deserve because, uh, they, they struggled, lost eight in a row, did not finish with a whole lot of momentum. It, it feels like, you know, uh, moral victories. Maybe we shouldn't uh, think that they actually do have any momentum. Losing close to Temple, who we talked about was one of the worst teams in college football last year. UCF felt maybe a little closer than the 12-point margin, but uh, scoring 46 was certainly a, a good sign. But then the player responsible for a big, big chunk of that Jordan McLeod, who was the starting quarterback that day and and some other days, there was certainly a rotation at USF last year, but he's since transferred to Arizona. Uh, Johnny Ford was one of the more exciting players on the roster, a guy who can do a lot of different things as a running back and uh, wide receiver. He's transferred to FAU. Couldn't stay out of trouble, unfortunately, but, but, you know, has moved on and and, uh, is a weapon that they will miss. The receiving core has been in flux for two years. They've had their fair share of uh, opt-outs last season, but since they've also lost, you know, some former starters, guys like Randall St. Felix uh, has gone on to uh, the transfer portal. The secondary, very, very similar. Bentley Sanders was a, a former starter. He's transferred to Nevada. Nick Roberts, a former starter, was actually technically a starter last year, but has in- entered the transfer portal. So there's a lot of movement both in and out. Uh, but, you know, the coaching staff is going into its second season, just like every other second year head coach, hopefully a little bit more uh, stability and, and on field uh, prep and, and in the you know weight room and, and all that good stuff. So it's a reason, I think, to look for optimism, but maybe that that actual optimism you know, probably shouldn't probably shouldn't look too hard for it because this is a team that ranked 121st overall in team performance. They were 117th on offense, 116th on defense, the highest, you know, uh, passing or, or uh, rushing offense or defense was 91st, their passing offense. And we just mentioned quarterback, you know, the, their, their best or at least most productive starting quarterback has gone. So it looks like Cade Fortin transfer from North Carolina, who looked good in, in a very limited 30, you know, 32 snaps, but came in and gave him a spark uh, in one game before he unfortunately suffered an injury. But it, it sounds like he's got the the lead in the competition with Jaron Williams, who transferred from junior college, but prior to that was a starter at Miami. Uh, so one of those two guys will probably be the guy. I know there's a, a true freshman that they're very excited about. Uh, Timmy McLean has, has been mentioned in, in, I think every, uh, magazine that I, uh, saw. So it sounds like he's the quarterback of the future. They're deep at running back. They have, you know, some, some promise at receiver, the offensive line, uh, talent wise looks okay. It's certainly very experienced over a hundred career starts combined and all five starters from last year back but they ranked 119th in O-line performance last season. So, you know, uh, Xavier, of course, does does the uh, old, uh, what is it, old garbage stinks more. So that that's certainly something that, uh, there you go. that could come into play. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm trying. Uh, 
but it, it's certainly something that could come into play with the USF offensive line. But if if you if you squint, you look hard enough, you think maybe USF is a uh, is a is is a team that can benefit from an extra year of experience, just based on the turnover that they've had coaching wise and roster wise. Defensively, it's you know it's a, it's a similar situation. Lots of transfers on the roster, lots of experience, bringing in even more transfers to compete for starting spots. The biggest uh, change since last year is that secondary. Jeff Scott mentioned, you know, there just wasn't enough speed or athleticism available last year. They seem to have added to that with some transfers from big time uh, schools. Christian Williams, who we penciled in as a starter from Miami, uh, was a high, high four-star transfer. Matthew Hill, who's been a receiver and a, a corner from Auburn, sounds like he's going to be in the mix to potentially start at corner. Uh, a couple of safeties with experience at, at you know Power Five schools. Will Jones, the second from Kansas State. T.J. Robinson looks like he's in line to be a starter. Uh, transfer from Rutgers a couple of years ago and sat out last year. So, you know, it's 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 similar to think promise. I think, uh, but you know, every team that we've talked about so far obviously is ranked higher than USF in our power rankings, which means they'd be favored over the Bulls on a neutral field, and it's a tough schedule. So it's not like things necessarily line up in a way where they're going to be able to, to think, okay, we can get uh, an upset as, as a home underdog. The only real thing that jumps out to me, other than we do have uh, USF favored by you know 18, almost 19 against Lord A&M, an FCS opponent, uh, but the only other game that's within a touchdown right now is a home uh, date against Temple. So they don't play Navy, who is, uh, I think, a beatable opponent. Uh, that Temple game is is certainly in the realm of, of, of a game that they can win. And then, yeah, East Carolina, Tulane by the end of the year, I think will probably be a better team than it is today. So that's difficult to imagine them, them picking that game up on the road. And yeah, it's just really difficult to see three and a half. It, it's really, really difficult to get there. The non-conference outside of that FCS uh, Florida A&M game is brutal. And, you know, not, not playing Navy, it's, it's really, really difficult for me to see three and a half wins. We only have them favored in one. Talent edges, yeah, I mean, that gets it over at four. But I just, you know, my, my – two-year-ago experience with USF and our talent ratings, even though I think we fixed the problem, we, we've made some changes and some adjustments that I think we better accurately uh, present their, their true talent. But man, I just, I just don't see, I just don't see three wins. And quite honestly, it's, it's going to be difficult for me. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't see, Four. I certainly don't see them getting over that three and a half. We do project three. Even that seems like a stretch. Two and ten with maybe one win in conference play seems right. Yes, Javier. I mean, it's hard. To, uh, I I hate to end it on a down note here, but it, it it's hard to be optimistic about USF right now, right? 
Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Uh, Nick said, you know, any any uh, optimism for USF? And I was like, I think the win totals that is already up, there's optimism enough. You know, I, I think, you know, you look at UCF, uh, excuse me, USF and, and three and a half is more than optimistic uh, for DraftKings to put that as their total for this next year, for this year. Uh, to even think that this could be a team that could be two wins away from a bowl game, I think is, is optimism enough. When you look at their schedule, Florida A&M probably is a guaranteed win. Outside of that, I don't know. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I don't know where they're able to put it together and get one. Maybe, you know, they're able to catch Tulsa after a bye week. You know, maybe they're able to to beat Temple at home the, the following week after that. I don't think they're going to win any games on the road. Maybe, maybe Eastern Carolina, but we, we talked about how good Eastern Carolina offensively is and their defense is, is progressing. I just don't see what they're able to do. You know, two wins, I think it would be my absolute hard stop on that, uh, on them for this year. Um, they obviously – and what's so weird about them is they recruit rather decent. You know, they, they finished 65th nationally this past year – or this year, excuse me, fifth in the AAC. Uh, 65th was 40, 44 spots higher than what they were last year. Uh, so they progressed and improved on the recruiting trail this year. Uh, they're they're also able to bring in nine transfers as well. They they you know and with them being in Florida, which is probably the most talent rich state in football outside of maybe California, you would expect the team to be able to do better on the recruiting trail for one, but for two, you would expect that talent to turn over and, and produce at some point. Being in UC, USF, and it just hasn't. Uh, it's been what I'd say four years since USF was probably uh, a, a, a relevant you know, or a mid-table to top-tier contender in the American Conference. And that I, and that's really weird when you think about how much talent they are next to and they are able to recruit from being in the state of Florida, especially when you look at around the state of Florida and you go, Florida's been the only dominant team in that state from from a wins and losses perspective outside of, UC, uh, outside of UCF. And so with that being the case, it's not like you have the old days where it was Miami, Florida, and Florida State just kind of, you know, sucking up all the – you know, all the talent in the in the state, and everybody just had to deal with whatever they got. Florida State's been on a downturn re- recently. Miami hasn't been consistently good at all either. And so you would think maybe a team like a USF could do what UCF is doing and plucking some four stars here and there that see and that see the possibility of playing in front of their home crowd and or you know and playing in their city versus going to a team where they don't even know if they'll win or not in a Florida State or a Miami. So USF is in a really really weird situation and i don't think it gets any better for usf in the future uh like i said they're getting better at recruiting but we've got to see a major turnover from them uh in the next couple years for them to really become what we thought was you know a possible aac title contender a couple years ago all right well that is going to do it for the aac and we're done with the uh the g5 now right nick we're moving on to p5 from this point forward correct well, well, hold on. We've got the independence, so we've got like the very important, uh, uh, the all important independence. We, we, I, I'm, I am ready to talk UMass and New Mexico State, but more importantly, there's you know Notre Dame, of course, BYU. We'll talk about uh, and Liberty this year, uh, based on you know coming off of last year, Malik Willis and all that. So it's it's I will try my best to to get through. Uh, the Yukons and the UMasses and, and the New Mexico State 
but there's some there's some real intriguing teams up uh, in that group as well. So we do have a handful of G5 teams, but then yes, Power Five, and then it's going to be. I mean, the season is going to be here before we know it. Next, uh, I once know. we start talking P5, it'll actually be in, in the month of August, mm-hmm. and college football will be kicking off that month. So. Yeah, we're yeah, getting I mean, close. We need it, to catch it's, up a little it's bit. Countdown time. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. I mean, I mean, you gotta, t- you guys gotta tune into the Independence episode last year. Scott actually picked a UMass game to start the year off. So you know, you, you gotta pay attention to these independent episodes, man. They might be, they might win you money because uh, Scott literally hey, look, picked you know, UMass versus year, Rutgers. First, look, I, I was just happy to have games last year, right? So I was excited about everything, including UMass. You know, now that we know we're getting this season this year. Uh, less excited uh, about UMass, but uh, Nick's got uh, you know uh, some money sunk into him, so he's excited to to, to talk about them. But we yeah. will get to independence. That's our next show. Is Independence we'll Nick? Mm-hmm. Yep, Independence this week. I got to move again, and then we'll start doing that. <laughs> yeah, uh, then I'm moving after that. So uh, lot, lots of moving and shaking going on for uh, CFP Winning Edge. But remember, you can follow us all on Twitter uh, at Bogman Sports for myself, at CFP Winning Edge for Nick, and at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Later this week. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.